You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. such a funny hat <laughs> I always wear this hat so much it's a part of my name now my friends my very very best friends they just call me Rose the Hat from the chilling halls of the Overlook Hotel I bid you welcome to the binge movie aftertaste shining retrospective now by God you are going to take your medicine Listen in as Garrett, Wendy, I'm home, Matt, are you out of your fucking mind, and Adam, I love the little son of a bitch, (laughs) and Adam continue their look at the film adaptations of author Stephen King's work. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. From Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, Words of wisdom, Lloyd. Words of wisdom. To the TV miniseries directed by Mick Garris. This doesn't have to be painful, Wendy. All the way to Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. Don't worry, that's my friend. The boys look at the hotel halls and wonder if there are indeed ghosts in the Overlook's walls. She called it shiny. How did Adam see the original Shining for the very first time? That is uh, quite a story. Is the miniseries worth King's efforts to overthrow Kubrick's original vision? Wrong! And how the hell did Mike Flanagan make nice of King and Kubrick's estates with his movie, Dr. Sleep? And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had the shine to us. Come play with us, listeners, and find out the answers to all these questions and more, all coming up, courtesy of Binge Media. No, stay, stay a while, see more magic. The Shining, released May 23rd, 1980. Budget on this was $19 million, box office $47 million, and this was directed by... Finally making his first appearance on The Aftertaste, Stanley Kubrick. Here's The Aftertaste, here to talk about The Shining. And this is a discussion, boys, I gotta say, that I've been both really looking forward to and really dreading ever since we decided to do this massive retrospective. Looking forward to it because there are so many things to talk about with this movie. With King and Kubrick going at it, the changes that were made to this, the casting, the shooting of this, the 53-week shoot, the fact that it held up fucking Raiders of the Lost fucking Ark to be shot (laughs) because he had the studio and he wasn't letting go of it, the studio burning down, Shelley Duvall 
Jack Nicholson, what can – this could be – and I texted you guys earlier this week. This could be a four-hour fucking discussion. So that is why I was looking forward to it. The reason why I haven't been looking forward to it is because this will once again probably make me a, a whipping boy for a lot of binge listeners because I have made it known over the past, although I haven't been able to discuss them too much, but I am not a Stanley Kubrick fan. I think the guy was a misogynist. I think most of his movies are bore. I don't like one of his characters except one in this movie. I don't like the majority of Stanley Kubrick's work. And honestly, if we were to do a Stanley Kubrick retrospective, none of his movies would get over 6.5. Is that a spoiler for this review? Well, just listen and keep finding out. But Matt, how do you feel about Stanley Kubrick? I feel like no matter what I say, I'm either going to piss you off or I'm going to piss Jack off. So I'm just going to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I guess it's a good thing the three of us are not doing a Kubrick retrospective because that would just turn into the Jerry Springer show at one point. It would just be incoherent <laughs> yelling. Yeah, it, it would be it would be like the pettiest shows we've ever done. So let me yeah. let, let me get my cards on the table because it's crazy that we've been doing this for over six years and have not done a single Kubrick movie. But I think it's appropriate we start with this one because I do think this is his most quote-unquote accessible movie for a non-cinephile, largely because of the material it's based on, the main actor is remarkably well-known, and it's, it's an iconic movie to, to the general populace. So this brings me to the director himself. Anyone who looks at my letterbox, you will see two Stanley Kubrick films in my top 100. This is not one of them. I will say for the record, the two are Dr. Strangelove and The Killing. I think both of those are remarkable movies. And I'm, I'm not going to detail my thoughts on this movie because I don't think I've ever made any sort of passing at how I feel about this movie in particular in all the years we've been doing this. We've covered a lot of horror movies, so mm-hmm. I'm pretty amazed that I've, I've kept it so airtight. But this movie notwithstanding, I do have to say, Garrett, when I look at his other, his other movies, 6.5 would probably be a little bit too low for me. Most of his movies, the other ones, they kind of hover around a seven for me. You know, stuff like Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. Those are the ones that I'd give a seven. I'm not a Clockwork Orange fan, although I'm not a fan of the book. Pretty much all of his movies, you know, as the, as the film fan, as a film scholar, you got to appreciate the artistry of how he made his movies and the lengths that he would go to, both on a pure technical level, and an emotional level, the latter of which are remarkably controversial, and, and deservedly so. But he's one of those filmmakers that I, I will always admire. But if you ask me, like, would he be on my Mount Rushmore or in my top ten favorite directors, unfortunately, no, just because outside of his, his two movies that are in my top 100, I don't watch his stuff when irregularity and part of that is just because he was so meticulous that it's virtually impossible to just watch any of his movies as window dressing you have to be prepared to absorb everything he throws at you and if you're not you're going to get pissed off or bored very very quickly and for the record not to sound like stephen king uh, barry linden is one of my most hated movies ever it's up there with lady in the water wow in my movies that i just hate with every ounce of fiber in my body that's a conversation for another day. So I run the gamut with Kubrick. I will say all of his films are worth having a very lengthy conversation about. And I think that's why he's had such longevity in the 20 plus years since he's passed, you know, going over 20 at this point. You know, there, there's books, there's everything, but I'm kind of glad we're not doing a Kubrick retrospective. 
Yeah, especially the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before I go to Adam, you know, you, you touched on something that I actually never even mentioned. That's the fact what he's done for film. I do think he did do a lot of good things for film. I mean, God, we'll see it really displayed in this movie, the Steadicam. He brought a lot of things to the table when it comes to filmmaking. But I'm saying as a film fan, as somebody who likes to sit down and watch a movie, and you, you said it yourself, I cannot sit and watch one of his movies. You just, you can't do it without paying close attention. And sometimes that's fun for me. You know, uh, listen to the Nolan retrospective. A lot of those I gave high marks to. But with Kubrick, I, I just can't. All right, Mr. Bunch, what exposure do you have to Mr. Kubrick, and are you a fan? You know, I think most people, if you were Stanley Kubrick, everybody's heard of him, right? And if you listen to this retrospective, there's no doubt. You know, if you're on the site, you know, if you're on Binge Media, you know who the fuck Stanley Kubrick is. If you were to look through his filmography and say, how many movies has Stanley Kubrick done? I mean, what would you assume? 30 films? 35 oh. films? You know, the guy's got to be, you know, prolifically long dick, right? It's amazing the notoriety he has, the fame he has for 16 movies. If you want to call them all full features, you know, because they're not all full features. What's he got? 12, you know, maybe a dozen feature-length movies. And for somebody of his stature, it's kind of amazing that that's all there is. I know his work probably as much as, as anybody going straight down the list, you know, from Eyes Wide Shut. I think Garrett knows me. Like, I was there opening day for Eyes Wide Shut. I was, liter yeah. I was literally, mm -hmm. it was a uh, episode one kind of waiting outside the theater to see that movie for me. It's about <laughs> as disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> it was also a date movie. Oof. <laughs> Maybe I'll put that story on the Patreon. Um, oh, my God. It, full Metal Jacket. My father made me watch the day before I went to basic training. <laughs> oh. Clockwork Orange, I feel about that kind of the way that Matt does. Um, 2001, Love It or Hate It, is revolutionary. Um, Dr. Strangelove is the same thing. Lolita, Spartacus, love him or hate him, he, his mark is undeniable. But when I think of Stanley Cooper, I mean, well, he's an asshole. I mean, let's just put it out there. He's a piece yeah. of shit as a person. He's a misogynist. He's the type of person that deserved a fucking punch in the face for the way he treated people, especially women. And he got away with it because of who he was. But the way that he treated everybody on set in his movies, he's he's kind of the archetype for who James Cameron is, or at least was, except James Cameron's movies made a fuck ton more money. But when you think of somebody who's just meticulous – and he's going to get a shot. I don't care if he's going to make Tom fucking Cruise walk through a doorway 50 times to get a shot. He's going to get it, and haters be damned. Is it good? Is it bad? You know, does having 40, 50, 60 miles of film make for a better movie? That's at least one we're going to discuss here today. But I think it's hard to discuss certain parts of cinema and certain eras of cinema without at least discussing Stanley Kubrick. And, Matt, I agree. I that, Every movie he's done warrants a discussion. I don't know if I'd want to be part of that discussion, though. Uh, let's talk about the other, the, the man this retrospective is actually about, Mr. Stephen King. As I mentioned back when we finished Carrie, this was actually his third novel, not his second novel. And like I mentioned in that podcast, I thought it was very important that we get The Shining in before the end of the year because this discussion merited getting it done quick. Only time I'm going to break that rule. He came up with this book. Let's see. He, he actually moved to Colorado for a bit. People think of him as being a straight main guy. There was a period of time there when he sold Carrie that, you know, and, and Salem's Lot, he started making some money. And so he thought, let, let me get out of Maine. So he, him and his family, they went to Colorado and 
One night, they stayed at the Stanley Hotel, a hotel I have been to. I had a drink at the bar. It was awesome. Got some uh, swag. Got some two, uh, 217 swag, 237 swag. We'll talk about the differences when we get to the movie. Got myself a hat and a whole bunch of other shit. And then the girl I was with at that time, me and she just took everything. So <laughs> when we broke up, that was it. Oh. it was, <laughs> I had shot glasses. We had pint glasses. I mean, we, we went to town when we went to that fucking hotel. It was a beautiful stay. I think I still have pictures of it, but we it was need, just an awesome, the, awesome hotel. The three of us need to go, go to a Colorado Palooza, apparently. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth it, man. I know Alex has been. We went on a whim. We were going to go to the Coors Light fucking brewery. It's <laughs> a fucking detour. And then, yeah, but we were driving, and uh, my cousin who was driving, he was just like, hey, well, instead of going there, why don't we just go over here? And he, and he, he was like, you guys seen The Shining? And we're like, oh, yeah, and then we went over there. You know, it's a tourist attraction. They have pictures of this, of mostly the TV miniseries, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, they have a lot of pictures of that because that was filmed there. They have some pictures of this. It's a really interesting tourist attraction. But he stayed there, and he had already had in his, an idea in his head of the kid with ESP. He wanted to do that book. And when he stayed at this hotel, he had heard there were ghosts. He says he did hear ghosts. And he kind of put that and the kid with ESP together, and boom, this is the book that we get. The book actually comes from, and Adam, I wonder if you know this. Do you know where the name comes from? Yes, I actually do. Is it a, it's a Beatles song. It's Instant Karma. Yep. Mm-hmm. John Lennon, Let It Shine. Oh. And King, you'll, you'll, we'll see this in a lot of his titles and a lot of references in his books. Like he's, he's a rock and like an old school baby boomer rock and roller through and through. So the, the book comes out. It's a pretty big hit. It's kind of flying off the shelves because he was, he, he had some, um, not flying off the shelves, but he was, he was, it was selling rather well. Sells it to Kubrick because let's go to Kubrick now. How did he get involved? He had been wanting to do a horror film for a while. He had the chance to do The Exorcist, and he passed it up. <laughs> and he saw what Friedkin did with The Exorcist. Also, he wanted to do a movie based on Napoleon. He had that going. Jack Nicholson was going to be the star. They had sets built. Everything was set to roll, and then the production fell apart. So he needed a hit. So he had his assistant bring him a shit ton of books, <laughs> and he just sat in his office. This is the story that she tells. By she, I mean I believe it's Vivian Kubrick, his daughter, tells this story. And every once in a while, they'd hear, boom, boom, because he would take a book, and he would read like three pages of it and throw it because he didn't have any interest in it. And lo and behold, he stopped throwing the books, and this was the book he was reading. And King refutes this story, by the way. <laughs> He says, you know, I don't believe that story because that book doesn't start getting really interesting till about 50 pages in. So he doesn't believe the story at all. I mean, these two end up sniping till the day Kubrick died. Although there was a period of time when they weren't allowed to, and we'll talk about that next week. But uh, yeah, so as part of the contract, King was able to write a script. The first script to this movie. He turned the script in, and <laughs> according to the gal that... Kubrick ended up hiring as a co-writer. They didn't use one part of that script because it was a lot of the supernatural stuff that we'll see next week. And Kubrick was like, nope, I'm not going to use any of that. So I think King kind of took that a little hard. But still, how cool is it to like go to parties and say, yeah, Stanley Kubrick is making my book. That's got to be kind of a cool feeling. Um, and then it takes, what, 53 weeks to shoot, which is an 
arduous shoot. My God, Adam. I mean, my first movie was, that was, what, about three months total shoot? Mm -hmm. This thing, a year, and just arduous. You know, so many things happen. And then, of course, editing. According to Tom Cruise, he was still editing this movie on the set of Wise White Shut. You know, he, he was editing this movie like crazy. But the movie comes out and is ravaged by critics. Two Razzie nominations. Uh, one for Shelley Duvall. One for Stanley Kubrick, first director. Brian De Palma came out against it. He said that Kubrick can't direct a horror film because he doesn't like or understand people. <laughs> <laughs> and this is fucking De Palma. <laughs> you know? Yeah, King over the years, he uh, he has said when it when it came out, he said he thought of it as a live grenade that Kubrick heroically jumped on. That was one quote he had. I and pulled, then I pulled up there, a quote. This is the one that stood out to me. He said that Stanley Kubrick set out to make a movie that hurts people. Yeah, <laughs> that, was his, that was his direct quote. Yeah. And he also he's he's also called it a Cadillac without an engine. It's really nice to look at, but there's no substance to it. There were interviews. 2019, he was still taking his shots at this movie. Like of all the movies on his resume, we'll talk about Lawnmower Man next year. Of all the things that they have done movies on, and he says that he doesn't care about. This is the one that just eats at him. I find it so funny that King has taken it so personal that this is what Kubrick did with this film. Now. Adam, Mm -hmm. please tell me, when was the first time you saw this movie? The first time I saw this movie, I was maybe 16 and uh, watched it with my buddy Garrett at his house. He was like, I got a Uh movie that uh, we're going to watch. We were enjoying a lot of different movies at that time. We'd stay up till all all hours of the night watching. I was working at a video store at that time, so I would pull movies. I'd bring movies home and we'd sit and watch them. Yeah. I mean, and if it wasn't that, I mean, we'd be up watching VHS tapes of David Letterman from oh, yeah. freaking the last 92. 10, 20 years, yeah. you know, <laughs> and um, wrestling. I mean, we watched it all. Yeah. Headbangers Ball. Um, uh-huh. Go back and Google that, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was an experience we sat and watched it. And I remember you were excited to show me this movie, too. Um, and we sat and we watched it and have discussion afterwards and i haven't seen it again until last year last year i just happened to put it back on i was like you know what i'm in the mood for something different my wife used to love just horror movies i mean just horror horror movies and i think it was saw three she walked out of and has not sat and watched a horror movie with me since (laughs) I, i i snuck i snuck a quiet place into her um phrasing um but this one was, I was like, I think I may be able to get away. I haven't watched it in a while, um, and it's a different kind of thing. So it was, it was a way to sneakily do it. <laughs> I think it was not too long after that. I watched it. Garrett goes, hey, by the way, I have an idea for next year. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I mean, it had to be no more than a week or two after that. And then, you can ask Matt. We've been, talk- we've been thinking about doing this for a number of years, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, I, think you, I think the times that you did mention, hey, man, we're get- one day we're going to do the king. I was like, King, I was like, fucking good for you guys. <laughs> Have fun with that. What sap are you going to get to be your third? <laughs> probably some We're dip- talking to him. Probably some dipshit <laughs> that agrees to do 25 Bond movies. <laughs> and then, obviously, again, um, rewatched it again for this. What I didn't realize, and fuck, I wish I did, 
cut this if you need. But room 237 was something I had never heard of until I was doing some last-minute prep, and that's something I actually wish I got a chance to to delve into to discuss while we were doing this one. Oh, the, the, that, that movie? The doc. Oh. Yeah. God, that movie. Oh, fuck. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it. There's some things that come up in this that we'll uh... – I don't, I don't think it's worth getting too into because, I mean, that's a fucking rabbit hole that I don't think there's some people who'd never crawl out of that fucking rabbit hole. Mm. Matt, I know you're big on, you know, watching the IMDb top 100 or top 500 or whatever. Are you, when did you actually see this movie for the very first time? I was about 10, which is probably wow. early to what I should have. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Just a smidge and scared the absolute bejesus out of me. As I think it would for anybody. Like, I think if if you're not unsettled by this movie, regardless of if you like it or not, if there's not at least one thing that makes your skin crawl or upsets you, then I think you need to check your pulse. And even as someone, you know, I'm a I'm a jaded asshole. I've watched I've watched pretty much anything that's been thrown at me, and for some reason I don't watch this movie a lot. The last time I saw it actually was during the pandemic last year. They played this on the big screen for the 40th anniversary. And I, I wanted, oh, nice. I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go fucking see this. Cause I know we'll probably be reviewing this relatively soon. <laughs> I didn't realize how soon it was going to be, but I guess be, be prepared. And yeah, it was really cool to see this on the big screen. Uh, sort oh, of like intended, yeah. but yeah, this is, um, this is not a movie I watch all the time. Although, even the Kubrick films that I love, like Doctor Strange Love, I've only seen it maybe six times throughout my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that I that I watch all the time. And probably that's just of all the King books, this is this is a book I've only read one time. So I, I'm not one of those people that's coming at this as a purist or a diehard fan and was so like offended by the deviations. I, I don't come at it from that angle. Mine is just as a as a movie. And as something to experience. Yeah, this was this was a book. This was a, I read it my, for the second time for uh, this retrospective. Uh, I read it a couple months ago. I want I made it a point to read all the books before we do these movies, as I mentioned before. And so, yeah, I wanted to compare and contrast. And I have notes where it kind of deviates from, and when it, when it's similar. Note: <laughs> Column A is a little higher than column B. Uh, <laughs> have fun when we get to but, the uh, end, yeah. by the way. I'm on my uh, fourth edition of it right now as we speak. Fourth edition of The Stand. Yes, I've read all four these editions of this book, this fucking 2,000-page book. Um, Yeah, so the thing about this book is, and Adam, you remember my dad. My dad loved this book. It was like one of his favorite books. And he has like a really early edition of it, which is what I read for this review. Mm Mm-hmm. It, the, the cover's weird because it has the family on it, and the guy on the front kind of looks like Harrison Ford. It does have scenes of fright in it. There is one particular scene, and these are, and King does this a couple of times. He did it in Salem's Lot, too, where when Danny is trapped, he's under the ice. He's kind of playing in the tunnel down there, and he has the shine, right? And he kind of feels that there's a dead kid in there with him, but he can't see him. He just feels him. Like, that's the kind of shit that fucking unnerves me. Just saying that just gives me chills. Uh, there's a couple little instances like that that really were like, ooh, like that. But other than that, like, we'll get into the backstory and stuff of, the you know, the majority of the characters and things. But it's a decent book. I, I know people hold it as one of his best. I don't think it's one of his best. I think it's good. But he definitely did better after and before this. I still think Carrie's better. Another thing about this movie... 
before we dive in, because we're almost 30 minutes in, we haven't even talked about the plot yet. Uh, another thing that King refutes, Matt, you mentioned when you mentioned when you first watched this movie, it scared the crap out of you. It does get that a lot. It does get on a lot of people's lists. I know Martin Scorsese put on his top 11 scariest movies ever. A lot of people just call it just one of the most scary movies they've ever seen. And King refutes that as well. King says, I don't find it that scary. <laughs> It's so funny. Oh, God, the feud these two have. All right. Unless anybody has anything else to add, what do you say we dive into the plot? The movie starts, and right away, boys, Kubrick gets you hooked with this long shot of terrain and these credits moving up and this fucking score. It makes you uncomfortable right right away, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Amazing shot. I mean, this first shot, I'm like, okay, it's you know, I'm I'm almost looking for the uh, for the shadow, you know, the helicopter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I sometimes I'm, I gotta stop and go, okay, time frame. This was done. The time it was done. The time it was done. And realizing, you know, 40 years ago, just this long, long and it's an unending shot. You know, it's a it's a mm-hmm. one shot, and it's fucking gorgeous. I keep calling it the uh, the depressed close encounters music that is playing as it goes through. <laughs> I mean, hey, come on, it's That's almost great. the same tones. It's, it's a golf version of close encounters, I guess it should be. Um, but fuck, it sets a mood like five seconds in, doesn't it? Yeah, yep. absolutely. You got to set it up for the kind of movie it is, and the the music in particular. You almost have to put music in quotes because so much of it is not symphonic or mm-hmm. really designed to. Elicit a response like, you know, like the Jaws theme. It's purposely unnerving by using sound effects and stuff that is normally not in a, in a horror score. Like, there's, there's moments in this movie where they simulate a heartbeat with, yeah, um, a lot of, you know, to sort of represent that maybe the hotel has a, has a heart of its own. So I, I think the, the score is one of the most unnerving, but also one of the most pioneering scores that you'll get from a horror movie both at this time but certainly since then. I, I think there's some some movies that have taken this and done it in a way that just fails miserably. But man, you talk about setting a tone, this does it right away. Yeah, a funny thing about this opening credit sequence here. When putting together his uh, director's cut of Blade Runner, Ridley Scott asked Stanley Kubrick, hey, can I use this uh, footage that you have in my movie? And Kubrick, being a huge fan of Alien, said, yeah, go ahead. Mm. Just, uh, you know, don't use anything that's already been used. And if you watch that director's cut, there's a... I haven't seen Blade Runner in fucking years, but I guess there is a scene towards the end where this footage is used. So some of the footage that they shot for this is used in that movie. So, oh, here we go, right away. We go to the kitchen. We meet Danny, Wendy, and Tony. All right, guys. Who do we want to pick on first? I'll leave it up to you guys. Tony. Okay. <laughs> Interesting thing. You know, Tony is, in the book, he is more of an apparition. He's a, he, he is like an actual form in the book. In the movie, he is less of a force. He is something that Danny talks out of. But I got to say, every time this kid, Danny Lloyd, who, by the way, is fucking great in this movie, that's another thing that's unnerving. Like when he says that Tony voice, it's like, oh my God, dude, like like, calm down, please. Okay. So let's talk about Danny Lloyd first, because I want to get to uh, Shelley Duvall last. I think Lloyd is really good in this movie. When I first saw this movie, I was probably around the time Matt saw it. I was probably around 10 
And it was a movie that I had heard about, heard about, heard about. I used to watch a movie called Terror in the Isles, and they would play scenes from this movie a lot. This was just something that was always on the back burner. And then, and then um, you know, and it was the first time I actually heard the name Stephen King, too, was uh, when I was watching this documentary. And I gravitated towards Danny. Danny was the, around my age. Danny was the kid that I kind of, I, I should say I identify with because Adam knows. I had a great family growing up. My parents loved the hell out of us. You know, we, we, we were never beaten. But still, like, he was the only character that was around my age. So I liked Danny. And watching it as an adult, he is a really, really good actor in this movie. How do you guys feel about Danny in this? It's amazing to, to look at and do a little research that he hadn't done anything before or fucking after. Yeah. Um, I think he kind of sets a bar for kid actors. I mean, he's five. That's crazy. I would I would love to see what, because I know he wasn't told it was a horror movie, you know, he's kind of told, which of course you don't, you know, you say what you have to to get the performance. But I would love to almost see what it was and how, especially being the way that he was a fucking cock to other people on set, but I'd love to see how Kubrick directed him. Danny Lloyd has come out in an interview since and said that Kubrick was nothing but a gentleman to him. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Said he was yeah, yeah, yeah. very oh, good to him. Oh, yeah, that, that I don't doubt because I don't think that would have flown. Yeah. I would just – I would love to know what his directing – like how he got what he got out of him because I think it's, it's pretty astounding. I mean you all discussed, you know, Sixth Sense and, you know, child actors and getting a great performance. And I think this is one of the best child performances we see – on film. I mean, it really is. It carries it. It would not work without some of the stuff we see in this movie from Danny's perspective. Unfortunately, I'm not going to offer a contrasting opinion. Sorry for those of you who thought I was going to knock this, this kid. Cause I, I think of the three of us, I'm the most forgiving of kid actors. You are. Fortunately, I don't have to come to this, this little boy's defense because he is, he is absolutely magnetic. Um, they said that they picked him because he had the ability to, concentrate for long periods of time and of course working with kid actors their attention spans can be very limited god squirrel that just try to make this movie nowadays with every kid on ritalin and adhd <laughs> it would take 53 weeks just to get the kid to stand still so you get a <laughs> all right so we all agree on danny lloyd let's talk about miss shelly duvall the most critiqued performance I have seen in a King film and maybe the majority of films like this performance. King hates this performance so much. He has called it one of the most misogynistic uh, characters ever put to film. He cannot stand what she did with this role. I will say that Stanley Kubrick did give reasons for why he cast her in this because in the book, the character of Wendy is a former cheerleader. She's physically capable and she's a strong woman. You know, we're, we're going to see that kind of play out next week. Shelley Duvall is none of those. And the reason Kubrick cast her is because with the way Jack is, if you were an actual strong woman, you would not stay with somebody like that. You would not stay with an abuser. And she feels he wanted her to look like she needed him. And I tell you, it is to the detriment of this story. I completely agree with King on this one. I do not like Shelley Duvall in this movie. I feel for her. You know, we're talking about instances where I really feel for her and what she had to do in this movie. Bless her heart. But I, I tell you, I, I do not like this portrayal of Wendy at all. I think Shelley Duvall's fucking astounding in this movie. Wow. There's our contrast. Not only that, but I think she saves so much of this movie. Fucking olive oil forever. 
He's large. <laughs> Which it's amazing that that uh, her co-star was almost in this one. Um, yeah, and it came out the same summer as this as well. Oh wow! Huh. My my father only let me watch one of those. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the difference with the character, and I haven't read the book. Like I haven't. For those wondering why, you know, why is Adam here if he doesn't fucking read the books? I read a ton of books. I just horror books have never been my thing. I just I don't think I've ever had a book scare me, so I get bored pretty easily when it's a horror book. So if anybody's wondering why the fuck I'm here, but I don't read the books, that's why. If somebody wants to turn me onto a king that might change my mind, I'm older. Maybe I'll give it a try now. But you know, not knowing that type of a character and the only ever having Shelley Duvall and based on who she's with, based on what I feel is the weak link in the movie, I feel she, I think her performance, I think, and even take away what she had to do to get that performance with Kubrick being such a fucking asshole. She's amazing. I mean, she's absolutely fucking amazing. It could come across silly. Like we discussed, God, what feels like six months ago now with the very first Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it, it doesn't. I mean, so much of this movie, she does come across as fucking horrified. And somebody has to sell that, and I think she really does. I understand the critique of being a weak... Like, she's not written well. I completely can agree with the character being written misogynistically, and it is. She is fucking astounding, though. I think what you're seeing on screen is her actual feeling, because she was tortured Oh on yeah. set. He was a dick to her. And you know, I thought a lot of those times, and you know, me and Jack have had these discussions where, go back to the uh, Batman retrospective where I mentioned, well, Jack Nicholson told Heath Ledger, this role will kill you, better watch out. And Jack was like, I think that's all fodder. I used to think that it was, but I tell you, Vivian Kubrick did a documentary on the making of this movie, and he catches a moment of him cornering her and saying, nobody is listening to you. Shut up and go out and do your lines. And then he goes to other people and say, and tells them to not pay attention to her because I need her to get a good performance. Like he was a complete dick to this woman. And the, the thing is Nicholson wanted – and I, I actually kind of agree with this casting. He wanted Jessica Lange in this role. Mm. And Jessica Lange in 1980, that is the character on the page put the screen honestly mm-hmm. but Kubrick wanted to go with Duvall and I think he just did it just to fucking torture this woman because you know I read an interview with her I think it just took place earlier this year maybe last year she lives out in the desert now and she still has like I don't want to say PTSD but it's like she still has like memories unfond memories of this movie but she's still proud of the fact that she did it yeah. but I think what you're seeing is the real emotion come from her especially when we get towards the end of the film Yeah. Well, so I have to disagree with Stephen King I'm sort of in Adam's boat. I think with what she's given and with what she had to endure, I think this is a absolute magnanimous performance because I sort of have to lump it in with this interpretation of Jack Torrance is that you have to understand his frustration with her. She rides that line between being sympathetic but also being annoyingly docile as well to the point where you understand why someone of Jack Torrance's mentality with his history and with his struggles, would just be at his at the end of his rope with her. Not not to justify how far off the deep end he goes, but I, I think this is not. I know a lot of people say this. This is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. This is not Stephen King's The Shining. So I think there's a very specific reason why she's portrayed the way she is. We can argue it's misogynistic. We can argue it's not flattering. But I think it's important for why this movie, for me, works the way it does. 
Agreed. Now, Garrett, I did have one question because you would know better than me. When yes, sir. King, at least when he wrote the original, he was he married at that time? He was married. Okay. And yeah, he was married. He had his family, and oh, a lot of the things in this book is, and this doesn't come across on screen at all. And I think we'll see a little bit of this next week. But he wrote the book as kind of a response to urges he was having as a father, as a very angry father, Mm -hmm. because the kids around, his kids were starting to annoy the fuck out of him. His kids would do things like, (laughs) he would come into the office and the kids would like spread his fucking notebook paper all around the room and that kind of shit. And he, you know, he just wanted so bad to hit them really bad, but he didn't, you know, he held back, but the frustration is what he fed into this character. And I think this is the most personal character he has ever put the page. In fact, I think he still says that to this day. This is the most autobiographical character he's ever written. And I think that's what really got his goal as well, because you don't see that from Jack at all. See, and Uh, I I feel that. And and the reason specifically I was asking is I feel like King was hoping to see himself in this movie. And I'm wondering if because he doesn't see himself, that's where so much of the bitterness lies. And especially with Shelley's casting if he's like oh fuck my wife knows this character is partially based on her and fucking my wife thinks yeah. i wrote jelly Duvall. you know I could, <laughs> but this isn't my wife and but this is my wife so i'm just wondering okay it, it just took me somewhere as we're going through it so jack goes in for his interview and before i get there let's let's talk about the sets of this movie now you think and i used to think this when i used to watch this when i was younger that they just rented out a hotel and shot there for all 52, 53 weeks that they were here. But, of course, that would cost a lot of money, <laughs> and they couldn't afford to do that. So what did Kubrick do? He rented out Elstree Studios and built the interior of this hotel. All of these are sets. Wow. And, my God. Wow. I said a lot of bad things about Kubrick at the beginning of this, beginning of this podcast, and I will still say more by the time we're done here. But I will say, as an artist, as a portrayer of mood, these sets are fucking amazing. Yeah, no complaints here. I thought at least some of these interiors were legitimate. And it's hard to believe they're not because they're, yeah, absolutely amazing. I mean, amazing enough that it, you know, delayed multiple other productions. But absolutely, yeah, exactly. absolutely amazing <laughs> sets. Yeah, and in fact, this was the set that Spielberg actually met Kubrick on. He met him because he stopped by, and he's like, hey, um, I kind of need this studio. And Kubrick's <laughs> like, nope, we're not done. So he, they actually became friends after that, believe it or not. It was weird. Steven Spielberg has weird friends. Like, he was friends with Kubrick, and he was friends with John Milius. Those are like two people I would not expect Steven wow. Spielberg to be friends with. A lot of them I didn't realize they were set. Sort of like when I was a kid and saw Terminator for the first time, I had no idea the tanker explosion was a model. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, it's just the power of the 80s that I could have sworn, like, at least the bar and the ballroom, you'd think those yeah. would have been already established, just yeah. rooms that they would use. But the fact that they, it's like Kubrick, why people so many love him, and why everyone who worked with him fucking hated him, because he did everything possible to make it as <laughs> bottom basis as possible. Like, everything has to be built. Even the mm-hmm. stuff that takes place in the present day, from a goddamn spaceship all the way up to just, like, a, a hotel room has to be constructed to fit the movie screen. So Jack's sitting there, smiling as he's being told about a family massacre that took place in the hotel. You know, seeing him here, I can see why King was mad at this casting. 
However, there is irony in that because Jack isn't exactly a nice family man in the book either, as I mentioned. In the book, there's a, there's a scene in it where he broke the arm of a kid named George after uh, he cut him from the debate team. As a retort, George went out to his car and he started slicing his tires. So Jack went out there and started, he cut him up. By the way, he was sober then. So this was done by a sober Jack. So this was not a nice guy. So when King comes out and says, I hate the fact that they cast Jack Nicholson because the moment you see him on screen, you know he's crazy and he'll end up killing his family. You read that book and you can already kind of see the seeds start to develop there. Is that why he's no longer at the school? I mean, they don't say if he's fired. They just say he's no longer teaching. But they never yeah, give it that's a... the exact reason. Okay, because in the movie, they don't explain why. They just, oh, no. well, he used to teach. If, if, yeah. If one thing this movie is not preoccupied with, it's explaining shit. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the exact reason, Adam. Okay. And in the movie, it's just like I just decided I don't want to teach anymore. <laughs> Fuck it. You know. Let's. <laughs> but that's something that Jack Nicholson would say, though. All right. So let's dive into it, boys. How do we feel about Mr. Nicholson? This is the first time me and Matt have reviewed him. I reviewed him in Batman. I don't think I reviewed him in anything else. How do we feel about Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance? One of my absolute favorite actors. Um... He's one of the few actors that I've seen literally everything he's done. I watched Cry Baby Killer, for Christ's sake. Holy shit, dude. So here's the thing. I completely understand Stephen King's perspective. He is not wrong by saying that this guy is clearly mentally unstable and is already at the end of his rope. But that's the clear... I think this is the, the demarcation line between King and Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick has a lot less sympathy for the Jack Torrance character than Stephen King does. Because it's said in the book, and it's mentioned in the movie, that when Jack drinks, he hurt his kid. And I think Stanley Kubrick, when he read that in the book, he did what he, his reporter claimed he did, threw it on the ground, and said, fuck this guy. I cannot make him sympathetic in the, in the slightest. I'm not going to make him a, a complete monster, but he's, he's clearly someone that I'm not going to root for. And I think that's the biggest distinction. It's not the topiary animals. It's not the emissions. It's not all the other minutiae. It's the lack of sympathy for Jack Torrance as a tragic, self-reflected character on King's part. That's not Kubrick's perception. But it's also heightened. I think Jack Nicholson is perfectly cast for Kubrick's interpretation of Jack Torrance in the same way that Shelley Duvall is perfectly cast for this take on Wendy. Because if you notice, as attractive as a guy as Jack Nicholson is at this time, you know, let's not forget, this is sort of, he's always been a big star, but everything from, like, the, the mid-70s to probably as good as it gets, it's like a 20-year run where he was on top of the fucking world. And even though he's attractive, he looks unkempt throughout this entire movie. And Shelley Duvall, no disrespect, very off-putting facial features. And I think that works to the movie's benefit because Kubrick uses the, you know, the wide-angle lens throughout this entire movie. And if anyone who knows anything about camera work knows that it's purposefully designed to elongate certain facial features and sort of enhance things. So I think that adds to their casting in addition to the excessive amount of takes. I think it's sort of the perfect storm for why Nicholson comes off as so unstable throughout this entire movie. I think it's purposely done. Certainly not accident, but I don't view it as a criticism whatsoever. Like, I think this is, this is, it's Jack being Jack, but whenever he does, these kind of performances, I always love it. I mean, I don't think this is that far off from what he's going to do with the Joker almost 10 years later. Oh, it's it's almost identical, dude. By the time this thing's ending and he's actually laughing at the camera, dude, that is the fucking Joker. Yeah. 
there's extensions of R, there's R. P. McMurphy in this role too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was about to say that. Bit of his role yeah. in five easy pieces. You know, he's a, another thing that I think Kubrick and Nicholson do is the the nice family man. That's a facade he puts on just to get through like the day to day. The alcoholic and the just the self-deprecating, wallowing in his own self-pity, that's who this character actually is. It's just that Kubrick does not view him in a nice light. It is amazing that this is less than a decade, about a decade removed from when he was filming fucking Jack Napier. Because it's the same performance. It is. <laughs> At least it's Jack. Until he turns into the Joker, you know, it definitely gets more manic. The only thing that's missing in this movie is a in this movie is a dip in fucking some Axis chemicals. I want a descent into madness, and from the very beginning, to me, there's just no doubt that this guy's not only is he mad, but he, he's an asshole. I mean, yeah. I never get warmth towards his family, and to me, that's kind of unacceptable. I don't get the love to Danny. I don't get the love to his wife, and I think that's a huge, huge misstep. Now, if Kubrick's decided it's because we're never going to like this character, that's fine. But this is your fucking star of the movie. There, there needs to be some some reason to like this guy other than his performance. And don't get me wrong, it's an amazing fucking performance. I just, I I have an issue with the way it's written because he's not just a crazy, he he's just an asshole, you know, yeah. from the beginning. And it's, he, it's almost like Nicholson is acting like Jack trying to act nice. <laughs> you know, through the first, you know, 20 minutes of the movie or so, you know, when he's doing the interview, when he's that, I don't feel like Jack, the character is trying to be nice. I feel like Nicholson is trying to act like Jack, trying to act like it's Jack being nice, you know, so it's it's just a little, it's off a little bit for me. It's not, it's not the descent of the madness I get. It's maybe just the reveal of madness, you know, that comes out. But then that's fucking contradictory to what is going on once we get to the Overlook anyway. So is this guy going to be mad if they fucking stayed at home? Is it ghosts? Are there ghosts? Is it the house? Is it just a fucking haunted house story that turns him mad? Is it, you know, him? Is it the all work and no play? So I think it contradicts what the story's trying to tell. And because of that, I got an issue with the characters written. But Jack's fucking Jack, and he's fantastic. I mean, he's he's over the cuckoo's nest from day one. I purposely don't view it as contradictory because this is not a story of a of a nice guy going mad. This is a story of a mad guy going madder. <laughs> True. I, I could see Harrison Ford because, like, I think the closest he did to this was the Mosquito Coast. I've always said, like, if 1980, if you were Stephen King and you could cast anybody that you wanted to play, quote-unquote, your version of Jack Torrance, I get two words. Uh, it's maybe a hot take. I don't care. Christopher Reeve. Yeah, oh, he wanted fuck. him. That was one of the guys he really wanted. I think Chris Reeves killed it. If he, oh, God, yeah. He would have killed it, absolutely. Because you could buy him as a nice guy, but then when he goes manic, man, that would have been really cool to see. Because I loved his fucking bad Superman in Superman 3, so, <laughs> you know. I wasn't going to bring that But then up, again, that would, probably, that would probably be us saying, oh, he's just doing Superman from Superman 3. <laughs> you know what? With Harrison Ford, though, what would it be? Fucking 30 years later, he finally does that in a What Lies Beneath? Nice little family guy the whole time. You know, first time, what, only time he's ever played a villain in a movie? Matt hit it with a Mosquito Coast. He was oh, God. pretty much oh, an yeah. asshole in that as well. There are instances in this performance I don't like. We'll get to them. 
But Jack is Jack. You know, you, you either love him or you hate him. And I, I, I see this guy. You, you just can't help but smile every time that fucker smiles, you know? Which, when you're doing a dread horror film like this, is probably not a good thing. But it's cool to see Jack doing this, though. Because I'm such a horror guy. Like, I love horror films, and I want to be scared. But it's the same, at the same time, I just love seeing the guy on screen. By the way, I love this, too. I love this interview because we're hearing that he's taking on a new writing project. We're not sure if this is a play, a pilot, a book, a movie script. In the book, I believe it's a, uh, it's a play. But they never say it in this. <laughs> they never say exactly <laughs> what it is. And then, and then Kubrick has to take his shot at King, too. At the end, Jack's like, Wendy's a ghost story horror fanatic. <laughs> you know. And then he's just smiling and like really dismissively as the fa- face to black. That kind of felt like a shot to me. So Jack checks in with Wendy as Danny talks to Tony in the mirror. Kubrick uses mirrors. A lot in this movie. I didn't realize it until I watched it for this review. But every time there's a ghost on screen, there's a mirror like right on, right nearby. I just found that interesting. <laughs> we then see what was the trailer for the film. Blood coming out of the elevator. The reason he was able to get away with this, boys, <laughs> was he told them, oh, it's just water that's been rusted. Fuck and the so the MPAA. the MPAA was like, okay. But, dude, if you see that trailer, I mean, that's a lot of fucking blood. That's a, a red band trailer right there. But there it was, just playing right at the movie theater. But, man, you know, you look at this, I'm thinking, God, that's got to be a miniature. That's got to be a miniature. And then I did research on this. No, they flooded a fucking room full of blood like that. Mm. And it took months and months and months to get it perfect. And then once they did it and it wasn't up to cubic standards, which we know that's true, they would have to clean it all back up. And, oh, God, I just could not imagine that. But I tell you, the meticulousness pays off because this is dreadful in a good way. Like, this is just a really – it sets a mood of dread, dread, dread seeing this blood come out of this elevator. It's a cool shot. I don't think the shot ever pays off. It's stunning, visually stunning, but I don't think it ever pays off the way that it's teased. It comes off as something that you would see in a dream, and I think it does kind of pay off in that we'll see the results of the massacre later, you know, at least flashes of it. Flashes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think think that's what it's supposed to play off of. I think it's literally just a nightmare. Yeah. So Danny gets checked out by a doctor, and he tells her that Tony hides in his stomach. And um, so the doctor tells Wendy to not worry. Danny is just fine as <laughs> Wendy. And I point this out every time it happens, but she lights up a fucking cigarette. And then the doctor's like, no, thanks. <laughs> oh, this, this doctor is so fucking useless. Clearly, I know she got her medical degree, out of, her psychiatric degree out of a cereal box. Okay, she offers no she says like clearly your son is expressing repressed trauma manifesting through an imaginary friend you need to get this kid some actual help you're not kidding this is also where we learn that jack dislocated danny's shoulder and like i said this was in the book and so jack is driving his family to the hotel and is it just me or is he a little nuts here. As he's once again just talking about a death-infused story of the Donner Party with a permanent <laughs> grin just plastered across his fucking face like the Joker. <laughs> but here's why I think I don't have issue with, or I don't take umbrage with King's comments, is that this entire movie is preoccupied with death. Obviously, there's the exposition from Mr. Allman about, you know, the previous caretaker who murdered his family. But even just the conversations that these characters have, like they talk about cannibalism, they talk about all, all kinds of horrible stuff. So death is always in the air. And I think that works in the movie's benefit because there's always this there there's never any doubt that something bad is going to be avoided. 
So you're always building up that anticipation. So for me, I don't view that as an issue. I think, you know, it's a goddamn horror movie. When he's telling his four-year-old son that, oh, yeah, when you have to eat, you got to eat people. Like, and he has like, a big grin on his face. I kind of take issues with that. <laughs> Do you have these discussions with Alex? Do you talk about the Donner Party and... <laughs> So two years ago, we're on the way home from Reno. We're driving out. We're dri- we're driving over I eighty, and I go, you know, it would be a fun place to stop. And we stopped at the national park, and we went into the museum and discussed the Donner Party. <laughs> you, you guys, you guys both just do not deserve to have kids. I'm telling you, you guys are one instance away from having a fucking axe in your hands. Have you seen my eyes? I was, I'm a receding hairline away from. <laughs> The amazing part to me that I thought was Kubrick taking a shot was Danny sitting there being, I know all about cannibalism. I watch it on, I, I learned it on TV. And Jack oh, being like, yeah. you hear that, honey? He saw it on the TV. <laughs> uh, so Jack and his family, they enter the hotel, get introduced to the, to the Colorado Lounge as Danny's doing what any mentally unstable kid should be doing. Playing darts. <laughs> 1980, the real metal darts. No soft tip here, wussies. Yeah, exactly, yeah, because I just played darts a couple of weeks ago at my friend's house, and, yeah, she has the, tip, the, the soft tips. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're playing that kind of darts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so let, me this... talk, let me talk about the scene with Danny when he turns around. Please. Um, this is one of the things that I think is really pioneering about Kubrick doing his first horror movie. Uh, in almost every other horror movie, 99.9% of them, the scare is always on the viewer identical to the moment it happens for the audience, or, or for the characters, excuse me. In this movie, almost every time the characters are horrified by something, you see the expressions on their face. And sometimes they'll hold on that for a considerable amount of time before it actually shows you what is actually there. So... I think that's really brilliant because Kubrick is also portraying the hotel as a as a living entity, but not one that's actively trying to murder them. It's trying to drive them insane to the point of where they will murder each other. And the hotel, like this is one of the great haunted house movies, if you ask me, because because it's. It's not possessed by Satan, you know, it's not some Amityville horror bullshit. It's a it's a smart, borderline, almost like Lovecraftian presentation of a haunted house type flick. Another thing I noticed about this movie, too, that I had never noticed before, with the exception of the end, every single piece of film in this thing takes place during the day. Yeah. And this is getting labeled as one of the scariest movies of all time, and the majority of it is in the fucking daytime. That is astounding. Yeah, this and The Wicker Man are the sunniest horror movies ever made. <laughs> uh, the original Wicker Man, for the record, everyone. Um, if you do see the re- yes. watch it, it's good for a laugh. Multi-series <laughs> of this. <laughs> yeah, if anything, this one's got to be more like Poltergeist, right? Because as we learn, the hotel's built on an ancient Indian burial ground. <laughs> that doesn't well, fucking come into play. That was an addition by Kubrick. Yeah, I was about to ask. Yeah. Is that in the book? No, it is a complete addition by Kubrick. Why? It, I think... it never comes back whatsoever. No, but there's imagery and there's allusions to the fact that the Indians were pillaged throughout the years. And I think 
in his mind, that is his way of them getting back at the white man. I mean, is it, are, That's, are, the, are the Indians fucking furries? Is that what we learn later on? I mean, it makes no. It just what? no. It makes zero it, sense. It's, no. a it's a line, line that's just completely. It's completely dropped. Yeah. Like the line is dropped, and then like it never comes up again. Like I kept expecting, you know, like a scene of Jack running out there saying, "You buried them, knowing that they weren't like you know, like Craig T. Nielsen does and fucking Poltergeist." But no, we don't see any of that. You um, the main, yeah, but you just, didn't move it, the hedges, did you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I have a fear. Um, I'm going to put on my my own king tinted glasses. Oh, here we go. Room two three seven. Everybody, no, not, here we go. No, unlike them, unlike them, I should be allowed in front of a mic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I nice. fucking hate that documentary so much. Um, Me too. So, my theory is that because topiary animals are like an extension of Native American folklore in, in Western culture. I think that was Kubrick taking a not-so-subtle dig at the the absurdity of that in the book mm. as a way to explain, like, how the those animals function in the context of the book. And honestly, I like the hedge maze better. I'll, I'll, I'll say it. The hedge maze is great. Oh, God. Yeah. Don't get me started. We're, we're going to get to the hedge maze. But, yeah, I'm – believe it or not, I'm completely with you on that. The only other Indian anything in this – in the movies mentioned is they were going through is talking about, oh, yeah, we were on the – Navajo and Sioux in this area, which makes me think that Kubrick only thinks that there were two fucking tribes here in the United States. But if you pay attention to the designs on the carpet and stuff, not to get 237 on you, but that is very <laughs> Indian-like, mm-hmm. just putting that out there. Now, this is when Danny also sees the ghosts of the two little girls and starts following them. These girls are not in the book. This is another edition by Kubrick. Are you fucking serious? Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Holy they, shit. Well, they are in it, but they don't come to Danny like they do in this. They're not an apparition that goes and br- No. Oh, my God. Nope. That is a complete addition. Yeah. I figure they had to be as strong as a character, you know, themselves are. I assume they had. Wow. That absolutely stuns me. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially because Tony doesn't manifest in physical form. Uh-huh. But yet these the daughters of the Grady daughters manifest as physical spirits that fuck with this poor child exactly jack calls the hotel homie as we cut to (laughs) cut to old man showing them the hedge maze and says that the hotel was as you mentioned adam built on an indian burial ground uh all right the hedge maze hedge maze hedge animals you know without giving away my hand for next week this is the one time i will call kubrick brilliant for this change i think putting this hedge maze in which, by the way, this was the same studio. This was the same stage that Raiders of the Lost Ark was going to be built on. He held it up. This was the actual place right here. And eventually a next wing was going to be in there, too, for uh, Empire Strikes Back. But this hedge maze, I tell you what, man, it's such a great decision. Because you still have the claustrophobia that comes with being in this hotel. But at the same time, you know, you're not having hedge animals. But you are having this upholstery all around you. I think it's fucking awesome. I think it's brilliant. Oh, agree. I mean, even just walking through and are having a good time, you still have a sense of dread. Just the close, you know, the walls are closing in on you. You don't know what's around any every corner. Is there anything around any any corner? I mean, it's I don't know. It'd be like walking through, let's say, the halls of a hotel and not knowing what's going to be around the corner when you walk into a room, for example. So it mirrors the hotel in that way, but it's just. It's a fucking great choice. Really, really is. It, it's uh, the. This is why I, I love this movie so much as an adaptation. Let me say for the record, I don't mean to come off as an asshole. 
um, especially with the analogy I'm about to use. But there's a difference between an adaptation and a translation. This is the former. This is taking a concept of a story and making it purely a cinematic experience. Whereas uh, there's a translation, and there's, there's plenty of, of King adaptations that fall into straight translations. The, the example I always use, I, I made this reference before, is Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie. That's a trans. That is literally taking what is on the page and putting it on the screen. You're not putting your own stamp. You are slavishly translating it. Here, Kubrick is adapting a form of media that is processed one way, taking the instances of what, what happens in the book, for the most part. Obviously, there's there's some event changes and, and even some contextual changes, but this is truly a an adaptation of source material. And I think I prefer those, with Stephen King especially, because... God knows there's a lot of Stephen King adaptations I hate. But and there's also I can't lot, wait to get to them. And there's also a lot of ones I love, like the ones that take ideas and tweak them to where it, it's representative of what's in the book, but they're they're updated for modern sensibilities or whatever the sensibilities were at the time. So I think this is the textbook example of you don't have to be direct. Because if you were, what's the point of going to see a movie? Because whatever you come up with in your head you are going to be far more satisfied with than what's put on screen, even if it's amazing. Very well put. And I think we're going to see exactly what you're talking about manifest itself next week. Oh, God. Yeah. And let me say for the record, again, I've taken pot shots at the miniseries already. Let me just say I've only seen it one time and I was 13. Um, so I'm going off one viewing when I was a teenager. So, and, and, I, and I also make these jokes because it's an easy target and I need the points in my last <laughs> in my last weeks of sanity before I lose my fucking mind. This is also when we meet Dick Halloran, played by Transformers the movie's own Scatman Crothers. Scatman. <laughs> we already reviewed this guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course that. Uh, what's our first Stanley Kubrick? What's our first Stanley Kubrick movie? The Shining. What's our first Scatman <laughs> Crothers movie. Transformers, the goddamn movie. Not what's over the co-star of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All right, so Scatman. Let's let's talk about him a bit. Kubrick didn't want him. Kubrick wanted Slim Pickens, who he worked with on Doctor Strangelove. Slim Pickens was working on something else. By the way, Slim Pickens, white guy. Yeah, I'm Yeah, yeah, Dick Halloran in the book and in this movie is a black gentleman. And I think, I don't know Slim Pickens. There, there's differing uh, interpretations out there. I read that he was too busy, and I also read that after working with him on Dr. Strangelove, Slim Pickens didn't want anything to do with Kubrick. Kubrick was upset that he didn't get Slim Pickens. But when Scatman Crothers heard that the role was open, he was good friends with Jack Nicholson. So he called Jack Nicholson and said, can you please get me on this movie? Nicholson made the recommendation. I think Kubrick hired him because he's a friend of Jack's. And he's another one. Fucking Kubrick tortured the fuck out of this guy. They did take after take after take. And by the time this was over, and you see on the documentary that Vivian Kubrick put together... I mean, he's sitting in a corner crying because he's just emotionally drained from what Kubrick was doing with him. That he, I don't. Back in 2014, he was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most number of takes. I think they did 148 takes of that scene of Halloran and Danny sitting there talking about the shine. That was 148 takes, folks. Did you really need to go 148 takes? But I'll, I'll say this: 
I mentioned, beginning of this podcast, of all Kubrick's movies, there's only one character I've ever warmed up to. I love Dick Halloran in this movie. I love what Scatman Crothers does in this. I'm not going to credit all of that to Kubrick. I'm going to credit Scatman for that, but he is really good as Dick Halloran, and uh, I, I like Dick Halloran a lot in this. You know, he might have gotten stuck with him at the very end just because there was Slim Pickens. <laughs> very well played, sir. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Matt. This is why I want to go first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, fuck. Matt goes first, and that one. That's my fault. <laughs> but Scatman is fucking amazing. He, he, I mean, you can't help but endear yourself to this man. I mean, right off the bat. The way he's talking to Danny, the way he takes him around, his reveal here, you know, which comes pretty quick. But, oh, God, he, he's fucking great. If there's an avatar for, I think, the audience, I think this is him. But such a great character, such a great role here. For a director who is often criticized for his movies being too clinical and too cold, this is the most endearing character he's ever had in any of his movies. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's it's really important in a movie where the characters are largely isolated, the principal three, having someone that Danny can actually talk to and not feel like there, there's an emotional dissonance is really important. And, and like I said, I haven't read the book in a considerable amount of time, so I don't know how this character is written in that, but Lord knows this also could have been in lesser hands. This could have been uh, the mystical magical Negro, which Stephen yep. King, he will do that poorly in some of his other works. Couple. Yeah. Here. I think he, he does it without it coming across as insensitive. He has in some interviews and said that he was just an ignorant white guy writing this character and the magical Negro. It, it has been brought up to him a number of times, and he's called himself ignorant for including this. But as you guys said, he's gonna he's gonna break this rule a number of times in the future anyway. So this is not you know Chef from South Park or Uncle Ruckus from Song of the South, yeah, or Uncle Remus, whatever he's called. Uncle like, Remus, yeah. Like there is nothing in his performance that is indicative of his race or his background. Like this can be played by anybody. Very good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Basically, it wasn't Bill Cosby. God, could you imagine Bill Cosby or Eddie Murphy in this movie? Like, someone like that. Where they'd just be riffing for 30 Oh, God. Like, could you, I want to see, like, Eddie Murphy have to do 100 takes with Stanley Kubrick. Like, I'm pretty... <laughs> do that documentary. First, that's the ultimate question. So, these dolly shots of them just going through this hotel. I love the camera work in this movie a lot. Halloran and Danny, they talk about The Shine and Tony. And as I said earlier, I do really like this conversation which is directly from the book, by the way. Oh, so it, this is awesome. it, makes, it makes no fucking sense in the book either? <laughs> it's, what you is know what? the shot? The shot? Okay, can I see the future? Can I see the past? Can I see what's going to happen? Am, am I just fucking seeing random shit? Like, what is it? Like, it's everything, and it's not. It's, it's fucking Deuce X shining. It's whatever the fuck it wants to be. <laughs> Oh, wait till we get to Doctor Sleep. Then you're gonna, your head's gonna really fucking spin. Uh, yeah, and some people have it, some people don't. It's like the Force, you know. It's like <laughs> it's, it's, it's just one of those things. Explanation, like, is it that they can see what did happen, what's gonna happen? Do they get a feeling for the surrounding? There's not an explanation as to what the Shining is, and I think this is King's, and I think we're gonna see this a lot of his inability to fucking finish and an idea and when he comes up with a concept that he can't fucking finish he throws mumbo you know there's a thing on star trek star trek where they'll get themselves caught up and the writers will literally write down science mumbo jumbo and somebody else has to figure out what to say and that feels like what some of the shit is right here 
<laughs> Basically, my my read on The Shining, and again, this is two thirty seven shit. Except I have um, a mind. Yeah, I have a, I, I have my own cognitive thoughts. Although uh, the whiskey started to hit me a little hard because I knew we were reviewing this movie, uh, and I was like, "Damn, I must be an alcoholic because now I want some Jack." <laughs> <laughs> So basically, he can read minds, and he, he's got some kind of precognition of the future, but also he can see the past, because he can see all the horrible shit that's happened in this hotel. So it, it's the, Adam alluded to this earlier. King has never had a grasp or a full conception of, of psychic powers in any of his works, and he's done this a lot. Not just in The Shining or Doctor Sleep. Uh, this is a big component in Dreamcatcher, which, God, I can't wait to talk about that movie. <laughs> um, oh, wow. That's going to be like 20 years down the line. <laughs> but he's never he's never had a good handle on portraying psychics in, in his work or, or anything like that. Uh, the, the closest he's gotten, I think, is The Dead Zone. But that's strictly... Premonitions. That's not reading people's minds. Like, like there's a difference. Like, the the lack of explanation. I'm glad Kubrick doesn't feel the need to explain it because this is this is a movie that's not preoccupied with explaining shit, as I alluded to earlier. It's all about just giving you visual and audio stimulation, which I I can't argue because it's God, so well done. <laughs> don't don't forget telepathy. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing that is portrayed in the book that Kubrick doesn't even touch in this movie. In the book, the ghosts in the hotel are after Danny. They want Danny. But Danny's too strong because Danny has to shine. So what they do is they end up using Jack to get Danny so that they can basically rule their roost. Um, how it's portrayed in the book, look – I think we'll see it a little more next week, but it's not really defined. And I'm with Matt here where I say, you know what? Don't bother explaining it. It's the title of the fucking movie. Just roll with it. Yeah, based on what you just yeah. described, because I totally forgot that was was a part of the book. That kind of dilutes what I'm looking at as a book. That kind of dilutes Jack's redemptive arc. Because really... He's yeah. just slim pickings. Like, so you're telling me he he's he has no control over his actions. Like, like that's kind of makes him look really weak. So yeah, but Stephen Weber's perfect for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, was that another shot? <laughs> he's no Superman like Tim Daly. <laughs> this is this is also where we hear about room two three seven or two one seven. That is as it is in the book because the hotel they were shooting exteriors of in Oregon. They requested they change the number to a non-existent one. Little did they know the money they could have made if they would have just kept the fucking number. Jesus Christ! Oh, that put their kids through college. <laughs> exactly. Their, their kids through college. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, one thing I don't understand about this movie, the one thing I don't like about this movie is their title cards there for no fucking reason. We're seeing random Thursday one week later, like. <laughs> Okay, yeah, thank, like, no. you, thank you, because I got a big fucking star on this so that I can ask those that read the book. <laughs> like, are these chapter titles was one. No. I, I guess that's a no. Is mm -hmm. there a big reason for them in the book that would have this fucking Avengers-style <laughs> fucking title card that comes up on the screen? 
Nope. Okay. I mean, it's, I'm even <laughs> trying to get a sense of, like, the time frame. And I went back mm-hmm. and paid attention. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Does this all take place in a week? Nope. Okay, well, they're going to be there six months. Does it last all six months? Nope. Does it last two weeks? I can't fucking get a handle on how long this was going to take or how long this entire thing takes. And even that I thought was something that Kubrick was using, but nope. Yeah, the, the, the passage of time, at least the months I'm fine with, or I would be fine with. The problem is giving a day doesn't matter in the grand scheme whatsoever. No. Like, does he get upset because leave it to Beavers on Wednesday nights and on a Thursday, <laughs> and that's why he goes out to Beaver and he's sitting at a bar. He's like, fuck, I miss leave it to Beaver. I'll go kill myself now. Like, you know, if they would have done the passage of time, even maybe by showing some holidays and maybe seeing Jack just not give a shit. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. yeah. they show up, what is it, uh, October? October to May? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, about that. Which, yeah. by the way, that's seven months, not five months. So almond full <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> we get the famous, I'm not going to say iconic, but famous shots of Danny riding his big wheel in this uh, hotel, just riding along mm-hmm. with the Steadicam following him. Interesting story about the guy who did the Steadicam here. He was also the same guy who did Rocky, the first Rocky. And he was scheduled to do Rocky too. but there's <laughs> a shock. This movie went over schedule. <laughs> so he was doing one week on The Shining, one week on Rocky two, and going back and forth for six months. Jeez. I tell you, man, that Hollywood cocaine will get you through anything. <laughs> Sorry, you're not going to say it. I'm going to call this a masterful fucking shot. But not, oh, absolutely. But not just yeah. the shot. I think what is really underrated is the audio. Yes. The sound of that fucking big wheel. And we all know that plastic sound as you're going, which is annoying as uh-huh. shit. But hearing the transition from carpet to bare floor... There is something, and Matt, you discussed earlier about the sounds and it being unnerving. There's no other sound but that, and it's fucking unnerving in the best way. It That sound design is masterful in this scene. So on my note, I was going to talk about the, you know, the wooden floor and the carpet, the wooden floor and the carpet. That's uh, And again, what's off-putting is the fact that as soon as he turns the hall and sees the two little girls, it's the first time you see something that's not supposed to fucking be there. Um, obviously, we, we've seen them earlier, but this is where we really start to wonder, like, okay, what's actually happening? Like, I think this is where the movie starts to take that seismic shift. Jack tells Wendy something will come when Jack, when he says that there are no ideas coming to him right now. So he moved here to work on this thing, and it's like, uh, I'm not having any ideas right now. <laughs> so here's another thing that the hotel staff would look down upon. Jack playing handball in the front room. Uh, <laughs> This was actually Nicholson's idea. This he want, he ad libbed this kind of on the spot. I could imagine it was tough to shoot. I mean, I, I guess it it creates a little bit of and this movie's all about the mood, right? It, it creates a little bit of that dread that the, something's coming down. But I don't know, man. We we have like five minutes of him playing handball for no fucking reason, pretty much. This is where we start to get though into like Terrence Malick territory, where it's like, for God's sake, just yell cut. Yes, exactly. Wendy and Danny, they take a walk in the hedge maze, and you guys want to laugh. Watch the behind-the-scenes clip that Vivian Kubrick took of these crew members getting lost while they were shooting (laughs) this scene. (laughs) It's pretty fantastic. You know what, that morph, that positive shot? Yeah. Oh, so nicely done. It is very nicely done. And and I love the fact that Jack's, like, watching them, too. You know, that's so well put together. So 
We then cut to Tuesday. We're hearing there's a snowstorm headed towards Colorado sometime soon. More of Danny riding his big wheel, and he stops this time as he looks right at the 237 door. We then cut to Jack and his typing. Doesn't seem to be having riding rider's block to me, boys. He's typing quite a bit here. Now, to me, um, okay, if he's typing here in this room and knowing what we learn later on, he's full crazy now then, right? I don't think he goes full crazy till he has the drink. When he has the drink is when he goes full crazy. Okay, because, I mean, what he writes never deviates from what he's already writing right here. So I'm trying to get a sense of who he is and where he is. I'm like, well, if he's writing, then the, we know he's only writing one thing. Then, okay. uh-huh. so he's at least he's at least at the top of the slide at this point. Yeah. yeah. Or or I have a theory that maybe there's no ink in the typewriter and he's just pressing keys because she can't. Wendy can't see what he's writing. He's being yeah. very. Sensitive. So who knows? Maybe he's just she's got writer's block so badly that he's literally just pretending to hit the keys because he's so embarrassed that he can't come up with anything. That's why he gets all defensive when he's like, we're going to make a new rule. And I'm in here and you hear me typing and you hear that great sound of the keyboard clicking. I think that's why he gets so upset is that he's like, I feel like such a fucking failure right now. And she's on my ass. And I know I'm on, I'm on a clock basically to get my shit together before we leave this hotel. And you know why I hate this Wendy? I hate this Wendy because not Shelly Duvall, but the character, because when he's going off on this rant and he's getting to be a complete asshole, she said, why don't I just come back with a couple sandwiches? This is the shit that I'm like, God damn. So fucking misogynistic. (laughs) It's fucking ridiculous. We cut to Thursday. (laughs) As there's a snowstorm and Jack, well, Jack isn't looking well in his black sweater, just kind of staring into the snow. Great shot, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, That's what I look like watching Jets games. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, here's here's the funniest part of this movie to me. So Jack is the one who got hired as a caretaker, right? Yep. So we cut to Wendy. She's doing all the work (laughs) as he's just fucking around on his typewriter, pressing inkless keys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a good point yeah, do we ever see him touch the boiler or do any of the shit no <laughs> no we don't not once more of the forbidding riding around in, in, in the hotel on this big wheel and wouldn't you know it there's the twins in the hallway asking Danny to play he does what Holleran tells him to do though and he puts his hands across his face until they leave and I think this was around the time when Adam was like so can we like go get some popcorn or something because <laughs> I'm bored <laughs> How do you feel at this point, Adam? You know, you, you, you've come back to this years after I forced you to pretty much clockwork orange style, just forced you down to pride your <laughs> eyes open to watch this thing. Uh, how are you feeling at this point? We're about an hour in. I need a glass of milk. Um, <laughs> sorry, clockwork orange for people. Yes, um, yes. Nice. Nice poll. I'm so into seeing what's going to go on with these characters. I mean, clearly I got some issues knowing that Jack's crazy from, from the get-go, you know, but that's just quibble. I think everything else is, is fucking masterful. I'm I'm loving the shots. I'm loving the film work. I'm really interested to see what's going on. There's things that I think don't necessarily work that I'm trying to figure out. Are there ghosts in this hotel? Is it just a haunted house? What is making this happen? Well, fucking guess what? It never gets explained, which I think is a frustrating part. But I'm really in to really a fucking clinic of filmmaking to watch how this is going on. Yeah, for the first hour of this movie, like, this is a slow burn in the best way. Like, I'm not checking my watch. I'm not Mm-mm. I'm not spending my time waiting for scary shit to happen, which I do with... What's funny is that for being a horror junkie, I don't particularly love a lot of, a lot of haunted house movies. I think the original Amityville Horror is fucking garbage. The, the Changeling put me to sleep. 
I tend to like it when there when there's something else like when there's a dissolution of family like Scott Derrickson's sinister really upset me um, because th- there's more to it than just a house. So so here I think this movie is just firing on us and those obviously I, I admire the technical craft um, even though there's a part of me that doesn't want to know the depths that they went to just to yeah. make it look so perfect. But all these being equal, this is you know this is a masterstroke and apparently. To get Jack Nicholson in the right pissed off mood, he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks, which he fucking detests. <laughs> so we get a father-son talk that feels like it was ripped straight from the pages of A Boy's Life. Here's the thing with Kubrick. He is just so damn cold. Danny's asking his dad this stuff, and his response, and Jack's responses are really hurting this narrative. This is It just gets a tad worse, and I, I, I think a little bit of warmth here would have helped. I disagree because what I find so distressing about this is the fact that when Danny says, like, you never hurt me or mommy, right? He waits 15 seconds to respond. And it isn't, are you out of your fucking mind? Or, of course not, it's, what do you mean? Like, like that is almost as disturbing as anything else in the movie as far as visual shit. Like, that this guy Mm. is already, he's in a spot where he doesn't know what to do with himself, and he hates his existence. This is why I wanted to see, I don't know, maybe even a nice family breakfast early in the movie, because I want to feel that at some point he was a loving father. So because I never got that, I don't get any kind of warmth, and I wish I did. I mean, a boy's going to love his father, and the only love that I feel is coming from Danny. Uh, it, uh, Yeah, I mean, the scene, the, the scene's unnerving because he's playing it that way. I'd like to feel this is a different character from the one we started the movie with. I feel this he's just worse of the same person as opposed to changing into something else. We then get the very famous overhead shot of Danny on the multicolored carpet as the ball comes rolling to him. And I'm going to make probably a hot take right now. I think this ball coming to him means that Jack has the shine. I don't think it skipped this generation. I think Jack has it. Really? Um, that's, that's my interpretation. This isn't in the book. So this is just me reading what Kubrick's trying to tell us. That's what I think he's trying to tell us. I have a different sort of read on it, and it's that the, the shit with the ball was actually supposed to be the alternate ending, the original ending, where... Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to mention that. the ball in the hospital, and then the ball comes back to him. So yeah. this was a way for Kubrick, being the meticulous prick that he was, to still have that in the movie. But yeah, I honestly, I don't think Jack has the shine. Um, I personally don't. Hmm. So... Jack, in that book around this time, Jack's checking scrapbooks, and this is how he finds out like a lot of the hauntings that go on in this hotel and the actual story behind the massacre and everything. Uh, we're not seeing that in this movie, obviously, because Jack's already, he's already getting off the fucking deep end here. Jack is passed out, and he's having nightmares. Wendy, once again, she's yelling, she's screaming, and as King says, has said in the past, he said, yep, that's why she was here. She was here just to scream and yell, and that's what we're seeing. As she hears Jack yelling, as, and he dreams that he killed Wendy and Danny. This is just what a wife wants to hear, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'm like. To me, it's, you know, I got my thing here. You know, is this, is this a nightmare of accuracy? And, you know, I don't know. Maybe to look at your, you know, if you feel that he's got it, is he shining what he's going to do? That was my and, exact interpretation. Okay. It's so accurate as to what is going to happen or what he tries to do that I'm looking for a reason as to why he's literally dreaming of what the future is. Danny finally says, fuck it, and just walks into t- room 237. 
<laughs> he's, he's been going by us for so many times. But Kubrick is building this. Like he's driving by it. He'll touch the doorknob every once in a while, and then he'll walk away. It, it is until this moment he finally like, okay, I'm just gonna walk in, and of course he pays for it. When he walks in on Jack and Wendy having a discussion, Wendy sees the scars on his neck. She sees Jack sitting and looking nuts. And even though she'd been with Jack the entire time, she accuses him of causing the bruises because, of course, she does. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. So Jack storms out, does a couple Jack things like throwing his arms out and stops in to have a drink, saying he'd give his goddamn soul for a glass of beer. We meet Lloyd as Jack gives a full-on Joker laugh right at the fucking camera. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. You couldn't have not have thought of that. Oh, oh, I absolutely do, but that's just... Everybody said he was the Joker. Bob Kane fucking said he was the Joker. Yeah. So oh, he's so, looking a little hot under the collar. <laughs> and, and this guy, Lloyd, is so fucking creepy. If you notice, he rarely blinks. Yeah, I did notice that. In fact, almost all the ghosts do that. I don't think any of these, like, like when he sees the caretaker later on, I don't think he blinks much. So it really adds to the the otherworldliness that the hotel possesses. And I love... He comes to terms with the guilt of what he actually did, but there's also that denial of like, oh, okay, it was three fucking years ago. Like, she, give me a break. See, okay, okay, but at the very beginning of this movie, it happened five months ago. Yep, you're, that, that's a that's a big issue. Is that the the, the chrono- like the chronology of this movie makes no goddamn sense. Nobody knows how long five months actually is. The difference between five months and three years. Um, yeah. It's sort of the one issue that I, that I have is the I don't know how long it's been since his last drink. Very good point. That is very important to the story. Well, maybe not Kubrick's version of it, but in that in the book, it is a big important part. And Kubrick just kind of glosses over it. And you're right; it's it's an inaccuracy. Mm. Oh. So Jack's having this conversation with Lloyd, calling his wife the sperm bank upstairs. And one thing about, oh God, that just made me cringe. One thing about Kubrick, he wants to imply every part of the supernatural elements of this story, but we never find out for sure if this is actually a ghost, this bartender. Yeah, this, um... See, I took it as not only, not only is he a ghost, Jack is either back and reincarnated or whatever is taken over Jack is back because he mentions that he's that he's always with Lloyd, which to me means that these two have a history together. Mm-hmm. And it's them throughout the Overlook over time. Let me ask this. Since it's not obvious that there's any sort of ghost around, could this all be in Jack's head? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I didn't even think about that until watching it for this review. And I was taking notes, and I'm watching this thing, these things unfold as I'm watching this movie, and I'm just like, you know what? This could all be in his head. We're not seeing a lot of the interactions. You know, I think a different filmmaker, you might see Wendy maybe walk down the hallway, look inside, see him talking to himself, and just uh-huh. keep walking and just get a quick little shot, Jack, Jack, and walk on yeah. past, you know, to at least see that he's there alone in a dust-covered room. Yeah, I'm glad we don't see that because there's yeah, me too. Because this movie works because of its ambiguity. I, I think Kubrick was purposely being absolute in his decision making. It's either I have to explain everything or I have to explain nothing. He was, yeah. but his co-writer has said that there were times when they had no choice but to come out and say, "Yeah, this is actually supernatural stuff going on." But you're right, Kubrick wanted to keep it all ambiguous. He wanted to do it the entire film, but there were some instances where he just couldn't. So here comes Wendy to interrupt his drink and mention the woman from room 237, 
We get another update on the weather as Dick is laying there amongst an interesting painting, I would say. All this dude's trying to do is relax. And here's this <laughs> little prick Danny just calling him to come help us. Great, beautiful painting. <laughs> I read in an interview where they said that they wanted Halloran to, like, they, he, he comes off as, you know, very, very proper. And they just wanted him to kind of seem like a normal dude. You know, so just kind of put this painting up there just for shits and giggles, pretty much. It is here where Danny cries for help from Halloran. Jack enters the bathroom as a heartbeat. And you guys mentioned this earlier, but it's booming in our ears. And this, I never thought about it as the hotel actually being alive, but that's a great interpretation of this. Mm -hmm. We see a beautiful woman emerge. And as Jack goes to her, she changes right to a ratted old woman who almost does the thriller dance as she stalks him out of the room. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> this was pretty frightening to me as a kid, though. I saw this as a kid. It scared the fuck out of me. Who is she? She is a mistress of the person who was running the hotel. She is explained in the book. She's not explained in the movie. We're going to get another set of characters who are explained in the book, and here they're a real what-the-fuck moment. So she's, a, she's the caretaker's mistress? Yes. So... The guy that we meet later that kills his wife, kills his daughter, and this woman obviously is drowning in a bathtub. We don't think that that needs a little bit of fucking explanation. This is Stanley fucking Dan. Kubrick, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, great scene. One of the most beautiful nude women ever put on screen till she transforms into, thanks for making Thriller fucking stick in my mind. <laughs> But I'm figuring... You know, like, I, I, I can't remember if she was the mistress of the caretaker or the mistress of the guy who murdered his family. I don't remember which one. It's one of those two, though. Okay, so the, um, the caretaker. But I, to me, it's, I mean, it's clear, at least, you know, when we get the shot of her in the bathtub, to me, to me, she was murdered in the bathtub. I guess it could have just been she drowned in the bathtub. And you know what? May, and Matt, you discussed the ambiguity with a lot of this. Later on, we get a full ballroom scene. Well, if they're all ghosts, is everybody fucking dead in this hotel has that has everybody been killed or died in this hotel and this is just that fucking haunted of a house well, that's gonna be a deleted scene on room 237 oh god damn no you know because uh -uh, you all fucking talked me out of that <laughs> <laughs> it's almost worth it like if you're not a fan of the movie you might like it i think people who are fans of the movie just really just dismiss it mm. but some people are like dude what the fuck what is going on here <laughs> Some people are just certifiable in that. Like one guy was saying that it was like uh, Kubrick's admitting that he filmed the moon landing. That was one interpretation <laughs> of it. Well, yeah, that's why Danny's wearing the Apollo sweater. Duh. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Uh, get me out of this fucking rabbit hole. So Halloran tries calling the hotel to no avail as Jack comes home and tells Wendy he didn't see anything. So Danny hears all of this. Jack goes off on Wendy, saying he's not going to let her fuck up his life anymore. And Jack does what I'm assuming is improv as he kicks some pants and gives a swagger as he's doing it. So now we're seeing, after this drink, Jack has gone full-on nuts. Yep. So Halloran, once again, tries calling for help as Jack, once again, does a swagger, this time leading to a full bar. He, uh, he asks for the hair of the dog that bit him. Now, a line is said here, boys. I Jack it tries down. paying. Jack tries paying, but Lloyd refuses it, saying his money is no good here, and that Jack is "quote unquote" the important one. This right here explains the final shot of this movie. I think there's one more I line. Think he's in, reincarnated. There's one more line in there where he says, "Can't orders from the house." 
from the house. Yeah. Yep. I took that so, very purposeful. Mm-hmm. And I, I like when they're talking and it, it's in this all red bathroom. That is a humor, creepy obviously. fucking Twin it Peaks is. looking bathroom. It really is. That's a good call. Twin Peaks is a great call there. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, Kubrick did do, you know what he did on the set? He said, I want you guys to see this movie because this is the mood I'm trying to build. Matt, have you heard this story yet? No, I have not. He showed everybody on this set Eraserhead. Wow. He was a huge Lynch fan. And he's just like, this is the, mo- this is the kind of movie I wanna- I'm trying to make here. Oh, boy. He was a weird dude. <laughs> Lynch? So this, yeah. is re- <laughs> <laughs> this is revealed to be Delbert Grady, this guy who's helping Jack out here. Grady says he has no recollection of any other caretaker. And Grady responds, you've always been the caretaker. And again, this is, again, proving what that picture means. Um, Grady looks at Jack, tells him to kill Halloran and Jack's own family. Jack's trying to resist, but at this point, he's right over the edge. He says he corrected his wife, which I always thought was a weird saying. Like, I corrected her. Like, ugh. So Wendy starts talking to herself, saying what she's going to do as Danny yells, red rum. See, the first time I saw this, I thought he was talking about the red rum that Jack was downing right before this scene. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to put stuff together here, boys. Who knows? We have Kubrick here. Might as well be. But red rum, like him saying that red rum, that, that was creepy to me as a kid. Like, just hearing him utter that phrase in that Tony voice, that did, that did unnerve me. Jack hears the radio going off, so he pulls out the plugs and he walks, and, he, and then he just walks on. And then again, this heartbeat is just not stopping. So I think you guys are right at this point. The tell is alive. Jack is doing more typing. We get a cameo from Apollo's trainer for some reason. Like Tony Burton shows up. I forgot he was in this fucking movie. We have two guys going from Rocky Two to this set. You know, we have Tony Burton and the cinematographer here. It's your to play. <laughs> Funny story about this all work and no play. This this huge thing that Jack is typing up, that was done by Kubrick's assistant. It took her three months to type all those fucking pages. Three months. And it made her twenty times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Threw him away after each take. Made her do it all over from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> what I like about those sheets of paper as you're looking at them, is they're not identical. No. There's a few typos. There's spacing errors. There's the cross lines you get that you would use on old manual typewriters. Something about the the slight imperfections of it just make it seem that much more real. God damn it. This is the one thing The Simpsons has ruined from this movie. Hmm. Uh, they did one of the best parodies of this. No TV and no beer makes Homer go crazy or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like that. And once they brought up the fact that Bram Stoker's Dracula had the fruitiest haircut in the history of mankind, <laughs> I have not been able to watch that movie the same way. <laughs> Funny you mentioned that. You know, I think that's another thing that really eats at King is that whole thing of that type page. That is not in the book. That is strictly in this movie and this movie only. Wow. And the fact that it's being parodied on The Simpsons, I think that's the kind of shit that drives King absolutely bonkers. Mm-hmm. By the way, very nice of Halloran to get a snowplow for everybody and drive it in. Um, <laughs> and that snowstorm was apparently not bad enough to where he could not get a one-way ticket to Denver. 
<laughs> Denver is not a nice place to fly into when it's fucking no, sunny and seventy five. You're it's, up. Uh, my mom just flew from down. it. Oh, yeah. it's a fucking horrible flight. It's awful. Denver's not fun normally. I don't care what time of year it is. <laughs> <laughs> so Danny's still watching the Roadrunner cartoons, and I love the subtlety from this song that they have here. If he catches you, you're through. That is some fucking subtlety right there, and that comes right through those speakers. Really grabbed me. Speaking of grabbing, Wendy grabs a bat, and he runs to the hallways. When we did Scream, Matt, we heard from Law that the garage door scene helped pretty much cause the Me Too movement. What Kubrick did with his treatment of Duvall here probably helped as well. This whole thing, he made her go up these steps with this bat 127 times. 127 takes with this girl going up these steps, and she was exhausted. Like, she's screaming this entire thing. Like, you know, not just physically. I'm talking emotionally, too. Like, she has to scream. She has to run from this guy who's coming after her. Mm. 127 times. He wanted to torture this girl. fucking dick. That it is a record in the fucking Guinness Book of Records just feels so slimy. Yeah. yeah, well, you the know. record was actually Danny and Halloran talking about The Shine, that mm. scene that you love so much. Mm. Uh, but, <laughs> but this scene, yeah, just the fact that he made her do this 127 times is fucking, it's, yeah. there's no excuse for it, oh. honestly. Can you imagine if we heard a director do that now? I mean, I've heard that Fincher goes up near 100 takes in some of his films, but man, it's just a complete dickhead thing to do. We see Wendy tear out uh, the all work and no play message. So here we go, boys. All right. I'm about ready to jump on some hot takes here. I've been more complimentary to this movie I was at than I was actually expecting. But in my youth, having the father figure of my life chase me and try killing me was a very, very scary thought. Kubrick has a chance to really focus on that fear in this movie and make it feel real. But no, we just have Jack being campy here. Look, I know this is what people remember about this movie, and I think this is another thing that just screams at uh, Stephen King because there's no way he wanted this played out. But, And I respect that. I really do. But this proves to me what De Palma said about Kubrick in that he had no idea how to make a horror film because this doesn't work as a piece of horror. Yet again, this scene and the you know when he's like, Wendy! Light of my life, like this whole thing. And then the Here's Johnny line we'll see later, that's the memorable part, and that's what this movie's remembered for. I'm sorry, though. It's not good horror. God, I, I love disagreeing with you because I feel like we, we, don't, we don't do this enough. Th- this is not because it takes place in the winter, but this is a great snowball effect because she, already, she is not buying this shit at all. And, and that's one thing, I, one thing I like is that she looks – the reaction – her reactions are what sells this. It's not – Jack. It's her realizing that the only other adult in this entire place is no longer on her side and she is literally on her own. I think that's where the horror comes from is that you are no longer on an equal playing field and you go into full survival instincts right here. And also you can't really leave because the snowblower is not working or or the the snowmobile and how far is civilization? Because it looks like a long fucking drive to get there. So... I get your point about him being hammy, but you know what? This is the end of the movie, and he's already been crazy. You have to escalate it. And I think he goes to far enough to where this is not self-parody, which God knows these next 20 minutes have been parodied into oblivion, one of which in Scene of mm. Chucky, which we talked about six, yeah. six fucking years yeah. ago. 
Wow, it's been that long. I think he'd make a uh, perfect father for Carrie White and just ham up the. Uh... <laughs> it, I I get the criticism and I got part of it as well. The longer it goes, some of it gets cringy. Later on, we get little pig, little pig. Let me. Yeah. I mean that that's fucking cringy. Um, even the here's Johnny. Even the the first time I saw it, I didn't fucking like it, and I haven't liked it any time since. Um, this part where he is, cha- you know, slowly walking up the stairs, Wendy. Wendy, like that one, I do get. Like that's pretty fucking chilling. Shelly's choked up on that fucking bat, like she's fucking Yuena Cespedes. I mean, she fucking, <laughs> she's choked up. And she clocks him across the head with that rubber bat pretty well. Um, <laughs> you can see it then. Um, yeah, but like right here, it's it's stalking and menacing. I'll give her credit for being strong enough to fucking drag Jack into a freezer. Yeah. Because <laughs> that could have been easy. Yeah, that's the of all people. <laughs> like, this is not Pat dragging James Caan in this stuff. This is olive oil pulling the fucking Joker into a goddamn meat locker. <laughs> uh, but, like, once it gets in there, the shot this that Kubrick has... You know, where the camera's on the ground looking up while oh, his yeah. head's... Holy yeah. shit, that's a great fucking shot. And you have that lock mechanism, which I've, I've been in restaurants, I've worked in this, so I know that you know that that's there just right by his face that whole time, that, that mm-hmm. post that's sticking out. They're really, really fucking well done. Um, you know what, and you know, Adam, I, I would recommend you check out Vivian Kubrick's documentary because she actually shows how Kubrick came up with that shot. And it's actually pretty cool to see because he's just like, okay, stand there. And he's like, oh, this looks good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's laying down and he's actually pull, pulling the camera up. And yeah, it's, it, you should, I recommend you check that out. It's only like 40, 45 minutes. Yeah. So I'll absolutely check it out. Cause yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we talk about a lot of the good visuals and a lot of the things like that, but shots like this, I think are overlooked mm-hmm. and being really masterfully done. And this part where he's kind of going back and forth and is starts to weep a little bit and then goes back into it. Like, that's the crazy Jack that I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of, as opposed to the just over-the-top Joker style. My only question is, does the fucking house decide to let him out of the freezer? Because he's, oh, he's, he's locked in a fucking freezer. Yeah, that that is the hotel letting him out. Okay. Now, in the book, Jack is chasing Wendy with a croquet mallet that he had just used to bash his own face in because the ghost told him to do it. Um, and the book goes into real nasty ghostly detail about this. If I remember right, I think we get that next week as well. But I think Jack walking up, uh, walk, running around with this axe a little bit later, I think that's more menacing than a croquet mallet. But I don't know. So Jack tells her that she has a big surprise waiting for her. She goes and she finds out that he has taken apart the only way for, them, for her to escape. Jack wakes up to, here we go, Adam, Grady being right outside the cooler, criticizing him for not taking care of the business at hand. Grady says the funniest joke of the film when he says, Wendy seems stronger than they originally thought she was. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was, that was the line that made me laugh the most in this movie. Danny approaches a sleeping Wendy with a knife in hand yelling red rum. And my God, Michael Myers didn't carry a knife that fucking big. Do you guys see the size of that knife? Maybe it's just because he's a kid. But that's a big fucking knife, man. <laughs> it's a big round knife. Yeah. So Jack starts chopping down the door. Funny story about this. They made a fake door for this, but Nicholson was actually trained to be a fireman at one point. So he actually swung that axe so well that the fucking fake door looked like shit when it broke apart. So they actually had to end up putting up a real door anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
We get the here's Johnny moment, which I doubt most modern listeners know. Like they, they probably feel it's just Jack announcing his own arrival instead of this being a reference to a show that was going on at that time, a late night show with yeah. Johnny Carson. I don't know. It's, it's just, and that, that it wasn't added by Nicholson. I mean, everybody knows that fucking line. It's on the fucking cover of my Blu-ray box. Like this thing is just, it's everywhere. So kudos for, to Kubrick to actually leave it in. But yeah, it's just funny that uh, who knows what here's Johnny means anymore. So suddenly the music stops and Jack hears the arrival of Halloran Jack does what Kubrick probably wanted to do, which is kill Halloran. Oh, <laughs> With this axe to the This was terrible. I mean, it's a good kill, don't get me wrong. It's yeah. it's the mo- this is the biggest jolt of the movie, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when this happens. But in the book he does live. Um yeah, and they end up he doesn't have an axe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in that book, you know, it's kind of interesting that they Jack and Danny talked about taking a trip to Florida as soon as, you know, the winter was over. And uh, what ended up happening was in the book, they end up going, he ends up going with uh, Dick to, uh, to Florida instead. And I think we'll see that in Dr. Sleep as well. Yeah, this is also the, the one like true like, jump scare in the movie. Yeah. But it's as about as effective as when Norman Bates kills the detective and he falls down the stairs. Like, it's that level of, you know, it's crafted well because he, he's out of the shot and it's built up enough. You know, he's walking around. You know that this hotel's big enough, so what are the odds he's going to be right there? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all things considered, I think it works tremendously. But I think it's very well staged. And this is the one instance I will say Kubrick's good at filming horror because, I mean, you don't see that. The way Kubrick has rotated that camera, I mean, I've seen this scene, I've seen this movie at least, I would say, about eight or nine times. I still, at this to this day, like, I never expect when he's going to show up and do it. You know, he stages that so well. Yeah, the, the blocking is tremendous. I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm going through, I'm like, there's one kill. And this is it. Yep. And, and and it's the character that we like. It's the one character that cares for the other character. I mean, Danny cares for his parents as, you know, family does. But this is, there's no reason to kill Dick. He's a good person. And, it, and the house is going to fucking kill him. And that kind of sucks. You know, he's been part mm-hmm. of the house. He's been there taking care of others. Yeah, it's sad to see him go, but it's really fucking effective. That's also Kubrick putting his own stamp on the material. He was a nihilistic filmmaker in every sense of the word. Like, good people never win. It's almost like Lars von Trier watched his movies in three <laughs> and I'm going to talk to this motherfucker. Like, I think they're very similar, but it's that whole thing of humanity sucks and there's nothing you can do. Like, life will kick you in the balls or kill you one way or another. Yep. Yep. So Jack then limps along and chases Danny as Wendy somehow ends up in the Disneyland haunted mansion. <laughs> Um, There's no guys in bear costumes in the haunted mansion. <laughs> All right, I don't let, know. let's get I've to that. Been, I've been to Disneyland in some areas and some times, <laughs> and um, over in Critter Country, I've met a few furries. <laughs> what is this fucking this whole thing of running into this haunted house? I mean, I know you're you're into your movie, you're trying to get the scares out, but Jesus Christ, you don't leave this in like that. That was silly. All these fucking ridiculous looking skeletons skeletons i don't mind grady getting a blowjob from a fucking bear all right all right let's get to that (laughs) so here we go the dude and the guy in the dog costume they do have an origin in the book by the way orgy in the book (laughs) origin oh okay he was a homosexual lover of, of this caretaker and so they had an affair going on and this ghost was 
it's almost implied that it was trying to stalk Danny. So these are characters from the book. Like you look at this, it's like, oh, that's just typical Kubrick imagery. No, that is taken directly from the book. I was shocked when I came to across that passage in the book when I was reading it this last time because I didn't, I didn't remember it being that way. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just feels like King showed up for one day, had a fucking baggie of Coke, and threw something into the film. Because, <laughs> oh, wow, it's out of place. We're going to get to the King Coke years, my friend, and they're coming up. <laughs> they, it, those are going to be fun, fun podcasts, let me tell it, you. It almost makes sense because it's so unnerving and a what-the-fuck moment. And, it's, yeah. and then it's gone. I mean, it's there, there's the shot, and then it's over. And, uh-huh. Wow. Sorry, it's disturbing to think about, which I guess makes <laughs> it really effective. Matt, anything to add? What I do on my Friday nights is not a script. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you had a line. That's why I went to you. Now it looks freezing cold out here, right? And I always feel that every time I watch this movie. Like you're seeing him stalk Danny in this hedge maze, which we introduced earlier in the movie. I guess we can call it, what, Chekhov's hedge maze. <laughs> but guess what, guys? This is the magic of movies because this snow is actually salt, and it was almost 100 degrees when they were filming this right after these takes, these people were tearing off their parkers. They were so fucking hot, but the way they filter this, cause it, it's actually red when they were filming it, but they filtered it so that it, it's all, it's got this blue hue. And I'm telling you, man, I feel cold every time I watch it. We're in the, as, as we record this, we're in the middle of July. It is over a hundred fucking degrees. I watched this movie today. I watched it last week and both times, even though it was hundred degrees, I felt fucking cold. Absolutely. So, Wendy runs into Halloran, Halloran's dead body, as Danny runs around the maze until Jack just collapses. How do we feel about this end of our main character, boys? I like that Danny, you know, he's smart enough, he's got enough ingenuity to think, oh, I'll leave separate, you know, I'll go back over the footprints I already left, so I don't leave a second trail. I think that's pretty clever. Um, as far as, like, killing off your main character like this, I'm glad it's not this over-exumer thing where, like, he gets sucked into the hotel or oh, yeah. they pull a poltergeist where it fucking caves in and implodes. It's just the el- the elements got him. The-, the thing that's always there, like, that's going to outlast the hotel is literally the weather. Matt hit exactly the part that I liked is I love seeing Danny being smart enough to stop realizing he's leaving tracks and to walk back on the tracks and set them in different directions. Just really, you know, small moment that I really enjoyed and and made me appreciate Danny um, as they were fleeing the house. And we start to see the different images and things going through the house. We see the skeleton, we see the rooms are changing and it just made me think, you know, is the house itself changing? Are the people that are in the house changing and seeing different things? And the ambiguity just makes me, you know, you can go in a million different directions as to what's going on. You know, are they seeing the past? Is the house showing what is really there? Is this all a fever dream? Have they already been taken over in their mind? The visuals are really effective, and when they get into that maze, wow. I mean, it's just, you know. That, that Steadicam is so fucking brilliant, and the use of that Steadicam is so awesome. The way they trail Danny in that in that maze, and then Jack's, like, right behind. And they film Danny from behind. They film Jack from in front. And in it's front. just, it. yeah, it's very scary and, and uh, we, very well done. And we don't know where he is. You know, is he right behind him? Yeah, exactly. Is he somewhere else in the maze? Like, we have no frame of where mm-hmm. they are in there. They could be on completely opposite ends, but it doesn't matter. The suspense is there as he's chasing them down. Now, to answer your question, I fucking hate what happens to Jack right here. Really? 
I it feels like a joke that suddenly it's just da and he's sitting there frozen and the look on his face doesn't help. <laughs> you know, it it might as well you know have that like goofy dog look of Duh. It's just it it is so awkward that it's that it's it brings a laugh, um, and maybe it's a laugh that lets out some of that tension, but it's an unintentional funny and not in a good way. It's wow. it's, a, it's a total letdown from from what I got. Like it's is it a natural ending that makes sense? Yes. Is it a fulfilling ending? Oh God, no. Wow, but that's not the actual ending though. Adam, you're missing the the real ending, which is the picture. A lot of interpretations of this over the years. Uh, Kubrick himself came out and said, I think he just wanted to shut people up because all he said was, yeah, it's just Jack being reincarnated. He's been reincarnated over the years. That was his interpretation. What do you guys think about this photo? I guess it's not Photoshopped. It's way too early to be Photoshopped. But this picture of Jack at this party in 1921. I think M. Night would be proud of an ending that some people are going to love and some people are going to hate. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it leaves us a nice little, oh, gotcha, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh-huh. what, when I heard of what the original ending was, though, and that this actually shipped two theaters with a different ending at first before they had to recut it, I was blown away. The ending, you talk about the alternative ending. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Matt, how yeah. do you feel about this, bud? How do you feel about this picture? What do you what do you say? What do you see here? I'm I'm absolutely okay with the idea of reincarnation, but I I sort of look at the Jack if he's reincarnated, I, I think of it as like a because King he's very critical of Catholicism. I think of this like the ending of Hellraiser or Inferno. Where Jack, just, <laughs> where Jack just lives this over and over again, mm-hmm. and he wakes up in the same spot, and like this is his eternal hell. That, that's my read because I, I'm glad there's no end, there's no interpretation. I'm glad there's also no like commentary that Kubrick ever did, where he's like, "Oh yeah, this is everyone else is wrong, and it is this like by decree." I'm glad there's still people coming to their own conclusions and getting their own pieces out of it. Adam, next time I want to throw it to Matt, do me a favor. Don't let me. He just referenced Hellraiser Inferno. Um. <laughs> That's next year. That's next year. It is the second best Hellraiser movie after the second one. <laughs> Wait, All the right, boys. After the second one. Oh, my God. That's weird math. That's <laughs> Hellraiser movies. All the other ones varying degrees of not very good, but that, if we ever do that series, that'll be fun, because Garrett, if Garrett was upset at me for doing Fast and Furious, he's got to let me have Hellraiser. Oh, I'm on it. I already let you have one. I already let you have one. Stop it. I've had more than one. Like, I've, I've had... Well, let, let's get through... Let's survive this one first. <laughs> all right, all right. But, so You know what? Hang on real quick before... Matt, how did you feel about Jack's demise? Oh, again... <laughs> South Park has ruined it with the blockbuster episode where they, they come to his frozen body and they're yes. like, they're like, we're going to McDonald's. Do you want Ethan? Chicken nuggets? <laughs> sort of. All right, we'll get that crazy. Like, the fact that he's still conscious, he, he looks like, you know, when you're, when you're driving in a car and you got to take a shit and you're still five, you're still five miles out from the first exit. It's that expression. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome, Garrett. 
Jesus Christ. Oh, I didn't know God. this was going to turn into a fucking Paul Reiser fucking stand-up act at the end of this podcast. But <laughs> All right. The Shining. We have spent two-plus hours talking about it, boys. We knew it was going to be a long one, and that's what we got. A scale of 1 to 10. What do we give The Shining? And, God, I am extremely curious about this. Matt, sir, you go ahead and go. I mentioned at the start of this show that there's only there's two Kubrick movies that are in my top 100. And those are my top two movies. If you ask me to pick a third favorite Kubrick, I'd probably say this one. Although, Lord knows it's been a long time since I've seen any of his other movies. This is um combines everything that I do admire about Kubrick with the shit that I, that I utterly detest. But for some reason, a lot of it really, really, really works for me. Like, a director who's got the instinctual capacity to make... It's a moody horror flick but it's still his own sensibilities. You know, there, there's the the eye of the technical aspects. There's enough changing of traversals of, like, typical horror stuff at the time. Like, you know, he didn't cast overly attractive people. Um, he didn't, you know, show all the horrible shit immediately. One of the scariest things for people to face, I think, is the unknown. And I think this movie does present its plotting with that. And it still preserves what I think King does well even in the books I don't like. For for a movie that he detests so much, it's fascinating that I like Stephen King best, and he does this with both of his regular supernatural, with his regular movies and his supernatural movies, is when he makes movies about the psychological condition and what ultimately scares us, like, as people, I, I think that's when he's at his best, and I think this movie does that. Because on, this, on every level, this movie's about a father committing trying to commit murder against his family. That's that's one of the most terrifying things that, that you can conjure up. We can argue about whether or not it's effective or enough of a slow burn for your taste, but as a as a pure cinematic exercise, I think this is one of the, the classics of horror. I'm not going to be one of those people that, that's against it. And I'm also not going to be one of those people who is so slavish to the book that I view this as invalid. I think they're both valid interpretations. I, I really do. I, I see... Both sides. And with all that being said, I can't give this anything less than a nine. So I'm, I'm keeping it at a nine. And the, I think the only thing that, w- that would cause me to go over a 10 or to give it a 10 is, and this just sounds so nitpicky, I would have jettisoned all the title cards. I don't think they were needed. Everything is conveyed through the events that you see. You see, like, a woman in a bathtub that disintegrates in front of your eyes into this old woman or having drinks with people that are not there. That's more than enough to convince you that enough time has passed or enough shit has happened to where someone would go crazy and try to murder you with an axe. So uh, it's a 9 on 10 for me. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't own it, but I kind of want to go out and buy this in the book and do a full... You know, honest to God, reassessment of both because I like this much more than I did last year when I saw it in the theater. Maybe because that I was by myself and it creeped the fuck out of me. You know, you had a year to do that exact thing for this podcast and you didn't fucking do it. Yeah, Just throwing I, that I, out there. No, I, well, <laughs> I'm a busy, I'm a busy man. Wait, I got to prioritize. I read the Bond books instead. That was my, <laughs> All right. my compromise. All right. Nine out of ten from my trusted colleague, Mr. Matthew Goudreau. Adam, sir, the one who initially watched it with me, was sneered at it, said, we're not watching that ever again. Watched it for this podcast. What do you give The Shining 15 so, years later? So in, in 1980, Roger Ebert came out of The Shining and said, The Shining isn't a masterpiece. 
It's a massive bore fest. I hated it, and I wish I'd never bothered watching it. And then decades later, he completely, and I think it's one of the only times he's ever changed a review or re-reviewed a movie and gave it glowing marks, revisiting, recontextualizing the movie and what it meant to him. And I'm exactly in that same kind of boat. One, Garrett's doing fucking cartwheels right now, not only because I referenced Roger Ebert, but because years ago when we watched this movie, I was turned off to it. And it could be that it wasn't what I wanted out of a horror movie. And at 16 years old, it's not a horror movie for me. Um, I don't know how it stands looking at it as a horror movie, you know, that's got certain connotations and genre stuff to go with it. But as a fucking unsettling, unnerving piece of cinema... God damn, The Shining works so fucking well. When I sat down to rewatch it, I was like, okay, yeah, I saw it. There's going to be some things that I may enjoy. And I was struck by just how much I was sucked into the acting, the filmmaking, the sound design, everything with it. I mean, think about it. After the first 25 minutes of this movie, there's three people for a long time. And then you get one other one, and you get one other one. But this isn't a cast of a huge motion picture there's a couple people there's a small and a small family this isn't even a fucking poltergeist size family this is three people in a haunted house for over two hours (laughs) you know it's a long movie on top of that as an ignorant teenager yeah i was bored as a 40 year old man i will probably watch this kind of regularly as i get into a halloween season and a moody you know type of film wanting to watch jack nicholson is puts on an absolutely fantastic performance. Um, I've been critical about the way the character was written, but Jack is, is, is fucking fantastic. Danny, the boy that plays Danny, absolutely phenomenal. Danny Lloyd playing Danny, or Danny Danny. It's amazing to see that he didn't ever act again. Almost a shame, because he's, he's believable. We share the horror that Danny's feeling throughout this movie. Scatman Crothers as Dick Halloran is such a great character that, you know, as I just said a few minutes ago, it's such a such a shame when he dies. You really feel there's one fucking death in this movie, and it's the likable character, Shelley Duvall. Uh, amazing that she got fucking Razzies when realistically she probably deserved an Oscar nom at least instead. Just fucking mind-boggling. She steals the movie for me, and I think that the weight of the terror and moodiness and everything that was trying to be conveyed rests in her panic-stricken face. Uh, throughout the long shots through the hallways, the panning back and forth, uh, the sound design, everything in this movie works. There are some slow parts. The ending is so abrupt um, that I just don't really care for it. I do like the picture. And there's a few unanswered parts that I think just get a little too willy-nilly when it comes to the, ah, who cares, just go past it. And you do go past it in this movie and really enjoy it. I'm not going to go as high as Matt. I'm I'm really tempted to because I don't know if we're ever going to have another King movie that we're going to rate this high. (laughs) I got a bad feeling we won't. You know what, fuck it, I'm going to stick with Matt. I am going to give this a nine. I mean, I've already rewatched it, and and much like Matt, I'm looking at this going, you know, I don't own it, but I kind of want to go buy a nice collector's version of this and the book. I want to watch a making of. I want to, you know, getting through this, I want to watch a documentary about it. I want to learn even more about it. It, it, Even just seeing it last year, seeing it again only seven months later, really fucking enjoyed it all over again. So, yeah, I'm going to go with a 9 on 10.
you know, it is not shocking to me at all that both you guys, the lesser King fans than I am, Adam more so, Matt less so, gave it a nine because I am the King fan of this podcast. That being said, I can recognize good filmmaking when I see it. And this is good filmmaking. Don't get me wrong. But this is, to me, this is not a horror film that I was hoping for. It's still just technically brilliantly made. There are shots that I outlined in the course of this podcast, but there's miscasting. God damn. You guys are praising Shelley Duvall. I don't understand it. I, I think she's just too mousy. She's too meek. She's just too weak of a character for me to even care about. I think Jack just hams it up at the end. There are some well-staged scenes. This movie is going to be debated by King fans and King himself for the rest of their lives. And I'm one of them. I am one of the critical ones of this. Still, this is the six and a half I tease at the beginning of this podcast. This is the Kubrick film I like the most because it is of the horror genre. And I like the fact that he did something different, but he did it for commercial reasons. And I am of the mind that this thing's beautiful to look at, but when you look at what could have been done with this character and where it could have gone, I just shudder and I think, God damn, you guys had such a potential to do something very involving and you guys did something that on the surface is great. But when you look deep down, it's it's not too great. And I know people are saying, oh, Gary, you're just the snob and you just don't like it because no, I'm recognizing what this man did. And I recognize that. And I pointed out shots that I thought Kubrick did a magnificent job with. I think the scenes of Danny on the bike, those are innovative, very ahead of their time shots. The jump scare of this is one of the best jump scares I've ever seen. There are things that are good in this movie, but I don't think it's a great movie. So I'm going six and a half, not because I'm the fuck it. Stephen King rules fanboy. It's because I'm looking at this and I think, look, he he went out to make a horror film, didn't really know how to make a horror film, and this is what he came out with, which looks great, but like King said, it's like a Cadillac without a fucking engine. You can look great on the outside, but if you have no substance on the inside, it just doesn't work. So it is a six and a half. There's plenty to like here. It's just not a good horror film in my eyes. All right, that was our... First, Shining Review. My God, we only have two left to do in this retrospective. But next week, we have the Shining TV miniseries. And boy, do I have a story about that TV series. I want to go to Adam ne- uh, last because I know, I know what he's going to say. Matt, uh, what do you remember? You've already teased it throughout the course of this podcast, but just give, give a little bit of a, another little bit of a tease of what, what we're going to expect when we review this four-and-a-half-hour miniseries next week. I just felt my asshole clinch up when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the fucking – I kid you not when I say this. It took me three days to get through this miniseries. Wow. Uh, I could only watch it in chunks when I first saw it. I recognize why Stephen King did this, but I think there's one thing that I don't think is going to change in my perception, and it's the my seething hatred for Stephen Weber as an actor. I, I I don't know where this guy who he's connected to, but he has to know where the bodies are buried, because I have seen <laughs> I have seen kumquats with more acting ability than this guy, and. So you're casting a sim- more sympathetic Jack Torrance, but you have a guy who looks like the, the guy who always plays sleazy lawyers. 
and this is the guy I'm supposed to be sympathetic to. Like, oh, God. I, I can't stand him as an actor. I never have. And I, I hope maybe this one will win me around, but there's also a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that um, Bloat is being kind in certain ways based on my perception. So who knows? Maybe maybe this will win me around. But I'm, uh, I'm willing to give it a pass. But, uh, yeah, this is also going to be our first discussion on Mick Garris, who's going to make as many appearances on the show as fucking <laughs> Dave Gates did on the Potter series. So, <laughs> fucking loads at this point. I'm just excited to watch this again, and I am going to read this, read the book in sync with the miniseries, just so I'm fully, you oh, know, nice. 100% up to snuff. Because I, I do have time to, to, to read the book, although I have to do it sooner rather than later. So let me go to the guy who I used to watch Wings reruns with <laughs> way back when. <laughs> Adam, what do you remember about next week's miniseries, sir? Uh, by the way, folks, you can still watch Wings. I believe it's on Peacock. Um, I only know this because I was watching it just the other week. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> Fuck you. I love Wings. Always will. Oh, he's, he's always loved it. Oh, God. He's always loved it. Um, I will say that I remember after pissing off our – Gracious host here 25 years ago by thumbing my nose at Shining. A couple years after that, I went, you know what? They did a real version of it, man. It's this. <laughs> and Garrett was like, fuck you. Let's go watch The Matrix. And I think we did. <laughs> um, they might as well have cast Harrison Ford because I got a bad feeling about this. It's been a long time since I watched it. I'm hoping some of the issues, though, that I have with this one get kind of smoothed out in the miniseries because when you got four and a half fucking hours that I got to sit through for you folks, and that includes me having to buy a fucking copy of this. Thank you, cocksuckers. Um, (laughs) You know, I hope some of that stuff at least gets ironed out, smoothed out. And, hey, it's King's vision. What can go wrong, right? (laughs) Put this into maximum overdrive. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit oh i can't I mean, wait to get to that one so it's i mean i'm i'm anticipatory but you know this is being stretched i'm gonna watch it like the miniseries just because that's how it was done so you know that way i spread it out a little bit also maybe so that i stay married at the end of it <laughs> um but we'll see i'm willing to give every anything a shot fucking watch the rage carry too so i'll i'll, I'll give this a go it's not going to be our last miniseries. In this no, retrospective. it's not. It's definitely not. You know, it, this is one of those things. I, I, I just have a story to share next week, which I do need to share. But there's just so many things about this that it just goes back to this movie. It goes back to the fact that the guy who wrote the book that this movie is, quote unquote, based on was so angry that he went out of his way to get the rights back to do a miniseries. And there's so many things to dissect about what I just said, and we'll get into it all next week. What I'll say is I do remember my feelings on it initially. I haven't rewatched some of it since, and I'll explain that next week. But it's four and a half hours, and Lord knows, I mean, at at the time we record this, me and Matt are doing the thing as well. I got to set aside four and a half hours uh, six, if you count the thing. It's going to be a lot of movie watching, but... Yeah, I remember my thoughts, and I will save those for next week. Who knows? Maybe my thoughts will change as well. All right, guys. We got through it. We got through our first Kubrick. I had 26 pages of notes for this movie. Lord knows we went through every single one. 
And I'll probably have three pages of notes for the four and a half hour miniseries for next week. But thank you, gentlemen. You know, I, uh, I, you just get a feeling when doing podcasts like this that you feel like you did a good one. And I feel like I did do a good one. And I couldn't have done it without my two co-hosts. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, Adam. This was a very big pleasure to do this movie with you guys. And we have a lot more to go. You sure did. Thank you for driving. I mean, this is what I was, I was really looking forward to this, to this discussion. Uh, I was really interested to how it was going to go. And uh, I don't think any of us disappointed here. Um, and to the listeners, you know, thank you all. Without it, there's not a show to put on. Um, thank you to Binge Media for having it. Hopefully everybody's checking out BingeMedia.net and even visiting their Patreon, dropping five bucks a month. Tons of extra content. Go over to Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Definitely worth your five bucks a month. Just for a cup, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can sponsor Binge Media. There you go. There's the plug. Just pray for my sanity. Because uh, <laughs> by the time this this show comes out, all my life will be considerably different than it is right now. So if you don't hear from me, everyone, I'm not dead, but most likely I'll be off Facebook for quite some time. And let me say this: we've already had a huge surprise in this Stephen King retrospective because me and Adam pretty much just flipped scores from 25 <laughs> years ago. I probably gave it a nine 25 years ago because I was wanting to be this film student who wanted to love everything and anything. And and here's Adam. He's just like, yeah, I'm giving it a six. And now, boom, we've switched places. It's just, what else can we expect in this retrospective? All right, till next week when we do Stephen King's The Shining. White Man's Podcast, Lloyd, my man. White Man's Podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. A little slow tonight, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. What will it be? I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd. Because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there till next April. So here's what. You slip me a bottle of bourbon... A little glass and some ice. You can do that, can't you, Lloyd? The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Congratulations, Dick! Remember what Mr. Halloran said? It's just like pictures in a book, Candy. It isn't real. Voice narration done by Adam. How do you think you can handle that? And are you concerned about me? <laughs> of course I am. Of course you are. <laughs> Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Dick, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers has it ever occurred to you that i have agreed to look after the overlook hotel until may the first does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that i have signed a letter of agreement a contract in which i have accepted that responsibility you have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? The 
binge movie aftertaste is edited by Garrett. I'm sure she'll be absolutely fascinated when I tell her about it. She's a uh, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working and on the go since 7 o'clock last night, so I haven't had a break. I've been up since 2 o'clock yesterday. Oh, good time. I know. Oh, yeah. I know the feeling. I'm slowly starting to wean myself off. You know what they say, all work and no play. Oh, stop. (laughs) Don't start. Uh, You guys got your boxing gloves on? I'm gonna be roughing this shit. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, do you have your referee shirt on? Garrett's, get, Garrett's <laughs> been waiting for us to have this conversation again for a long. <laughs> oh, I've been waiting. We'll get into it, right. but it's been close to 30 years that we've been needing this, to have this discussion. <laughs> Guys, I should be a divorce lawyer at this point. <laughs> All right, I am. Uh, I'm ready to go when you when you guys are. All right, here we go, boys. <laughs> Unless anybody has anything else to add, what do you say we dive into the plot so that we can end this before 3 a.m.? Uh, <laughs> actually, that might be accurate on on, uh, on uh, Matt's end there. Uh, yeah, so the movie's going to be 2.37 when this movie <laughs> Even the mm-hmm. stuff that takes place in the present day, from a goddamn spaceship all the way up to just like a hotel room has to be constructed to fit the movie screen. Yeah, what would the modern-day equivalent be? Like building a, I don't know, one-third size of the fucking Titanic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Your comparison is uh, very apt, sir. Mm-hmm. I, I give you credit for that one. It's very apt pupil. What can I say? No! <laughs> Not but, for another I'm sorry, Matt. That was now. totally your kind of line there. I apologize. <laughs> Hang on, i got to scratch that off because now I can't use that. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. In two years, no one will remember anyway. So, <laughs> I think that's what they said about the movie series. <laughs> <laughs> Shot across the bow. Um, so of Jack's the sitting there. <laughs> what do you say? Of the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that Kubrick does not view him in a nice light. Really, get a load of me. Um, sorry, that was horrible. <laughs> I, oh, I got mine lined up for later. We'll see if mine's much better. Well, well much like my joke last week that they, that the that the fucking binge cast has decided to fucking just broadcast for everyone to fucking hear. <laughs> Go ahead. Glorious. Um, <laughs> it's a fucking great choice. Really, really is. It, it's uh, the. Sorry to cut you off, my friend. No, you're fine. The... That he didn't get Slim Pickens, but Dick Halloran went. Or Dick Halloran, I'd call him by the character name. When Scatman Crothers, <laughs> yeah, about that. Which, yeah. by the way, that's seven months, not five months. So almond <laughs> shit. <laughs> bless you. We, yeah, bless you. We get the famous. <laughs> which God knows these next 20 minutes have been parodied into oblivion. One of which in Cedar mm. Chucky, which we talked about six, yeah. six fucking years ago. Wow, it's been that long. Matt, what's your take on this, sir? 
Or I'm sorry, Adam. Just what's your take on this? I don't want to repeat myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Take two. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do 127 <laughs> takes. God damn it, uh, Adam. What do you what do you say about this, sir? <laughs> so w- Wendy runs into Hollerin as Danny runs around the mate. Oh, I'm sorry. No, he didn't. She didn't run into Hollerin, did she? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, runs runs into. Oh yeah, she does because he's dead. Uh, <laughs> let me back up. <laughs> You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting. <laughs>